0: The 19th episode of the Mad, Bad and Dammit Strange Showcase went by bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies Tell me work for the 1001 film Introduction to Cult and Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Dammit Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Elwood Jones, from the Depth of DVD Hell, and tonight we'll be looking at a very alternative take on high school life with Todd Solence. Welcome to the Dollhouse, as well as the undeniably cult erotic drama Showgirls. But joining the studio once again this evening is the owner of Journeys in Classic Film, as well as one half of the Waltz Sent Me podcast, and of course, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Kristen Lopez.
1: It's awesome to be back.
0: Thank you again for obviously uh, finding some time to come back. Because obviously, whenever I look at your Twitter feed or your page, you're like here, there, and everywhere.
1: Yeah, I, I got I got a lot of irons in the fire, so
0: to say the least. Um, yeah.
1: Obviously, I think last... I'm. I think I'm recording four. This is the second of four podcasts I have between today and tomorrow.
0: Okay. So. I mean, last time we spoke to you, you would just come back from the TCM Classic Film Festival. What have you been up to uh, since then?
1: Uh, hoping that there was something fun on the horizon. Um. No. I. I've been just working and and writing and hoping for some good summer movies. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a pretty low point right now. So I mean, nothing. Nothing too awesome.
0: Okay. Been anything sort of film-wise that sort of caught your attention? I know that you're one of the few detractors of the Avengers 2. I've yet to see the Avengers uh, 2, so I can't really comment, but I did love your comments on there. Uh, when you were giving your update on the What's Sent Me podcast, uh, well, you basically described the ending as being Noah's Ark Comes Out the Sky.
1: It is. It The ending of Avengers uh, Age of Ultron is pretty much... Noah's Ark comes to save everybody, Um, and yeah, I was, I haven't been impressed by, unfortunately Disney's output hasn't really wowed me between that and uh, Tomorrowland, although I think I actually give the edge to Tomorrowland there if I I had to compare. This has kind of been a a weird year for me in terms of really enjoying first-off movies and then being really disappointed by subsequent sequels, so... Uh, Avengers didn't throw me. Um, Hot Top Time Machine Two is listed as my number two worst film of the year so far. Um, and I finally saw Pitch Perfect Two, and I hated it. Okay. So yeah, I have not liked any sequel so far this year.
0: Okay, I obviously have to ask, being this being the cool cinema podcast, have you seen the new Mad Max yet?
1: I have that. I loved, and <laughs> I have no, I have no connection to the originals, so. I, I went because it just looked awesome, yeah. and it's it's currently my favorite movie of the year. Um, I think it's it's right there. It's that and X Machina. I think are like the the num- tied for first on my list. But yeah, Mad Max is that's the one to beat. And feminist friendly and it kicks ass. And yeah, I got no complaints on that one.
0: Yeah, I mean it's funny. Obviously, like you just said, uh, that you had no connection to any of the f- previous three films. Um, whereas obviously, come from the standpoint of I grew up watching the first three films. I've had this wait since Beyond Thunderdome where we've sort of been in limbo, would we ever see Fury Road, would it be just something that just ever stayed on the back burner, so it was an emotional experience to finally see Fury Road um, on the opening opening night, just went first thing and absolutely adored it, and it's been really great to obviously hear people who aren't fans of the series, like, come away with that same feeling that I've had a lot of uh, rare five-star reviews of people who normally don't give reviews, I think Jay even, so sort of almost lamented, and he gave it 4.5 on the recent Lamcast. So uh, it's nice to see it winning people over for what essentially is just a, a movie about a big, long car chase.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of heat from people. This is, this is one of two movies I'm seeing this year with very little connection to the original source material. Uh, the other one is Star Wars. I'm going to see the new Star Wars, but I think I've, I've only seen A New Hope. Okay. So I, I told everybody that I would watch the original trilogy before December. And I've gotten one down. I have two more to go. But, um, yeah, so my connection to certain things, I just, I just have no interest in the originals. Um, the Mel Gibson ones I've heard, the first one I've heard is good. So I might get to that eventually, but I don't know. I mean, this one was just bad. I mean, first of all, everybody's kind of praising how different it looks. Um, the fact that it's, you know, pre- predominantly practical effects um which is just it's shocking how new and innovative that looks (laughs) in a world with cgi um and it looked beautiful on the big screen i mean i i told everybody i've never seen a movie that looked that gorgeous you know i i don't know if they filmed it on you know special ultra hd stock but it looked fantastic on screen um so yeah i've i've been going on about and i mean it's progressive in terms of how it treats women it's progressive in terms of how it treats disabled people i mean for me i was just kind of like in my happy zone watching this movie that yeah i was like who'd have thunk you know i would never have thought that at the end of last year that that would be the movie that like dazzled me this year
0: yeah i mean it's funny the fact that the feminist angle has been such a talking point about this film uh, for fans of the series they will have known already that the series has predominantly featured strong women. We can just, if we go right back to the first film, we've obviously got Max's wife, who again is a very sort of strong character. I mean, the strong female characters became more prominent as the series went on. In Man Max 2, uh, The Road Warrior, we obviously had Warrior Woman. And in Man Max 3, you had anti Emity, uh, played by Tina Turner, most memorably. So there's always been strong female characters there, and I don't know whether it's because we had Imperia Furiosa, who's such... A front and center sort of strong female character rather than a supporting character that it's become sort of more of a talking point or the fact that we had Eve Ensler who wrote the Vagina Monologues being involved in a lot of the character creation. That Um, that
1: I think is part of it. I think we also were dealing with cinematic landscape where people are taking more notice of, of how females are depicted, how females are involved in the filmmaking process. And I mean, they've, they've come out in the last couple of months with, you know, the Transformers franchise saying, oh, yeah, we're going to hire some women. We're going to put them in the writing room. Or, you know, male-based franchises are realizing that, yeah, women want to see some type of representation of themselves. And I think Hollywood is reacting late, but they're reacting, which is, is good. And especially with Mad Max, you know, for me, as a person who uses a wheelchair, it was just fascinating to see a positive depiction of not just a woman, but a disabled woman, um, because Furiosa has, uh, only has one arm, and it's not ever spoken of. You know, it's doesn't. It's not a thing where she has to cry in the sand about how you know she's half a woman because she's missing an arm or something. You know, like you see in in some movies, um, and it doesn't impede her. It doesn't make her a source of pity, which. Having seen so many movies where, you know, the inspirational cripple person, um, I'm not going to name names, uh, the Stephen Hawking movie, uh, but, you know, it's, it's it's refreshing to see just disability be a thing. It's not the thing, but it's a part of a, a, the world. We don't make it a big deal.
0: Yeah. I can agree more. I mean, I love, that's why I've always loved about, with the Mad Max films, you have people of different backgrounds and different beliefs surviving um, I mean we look at Mad Max 2 where we have predominantly gay characters there's some more so, so hints but front and center you have Lord Humongous in his uh, gay S&M bondage gear <laughs> and we also have Wes who has who is an openly gay character he goes into this berserker rage when his mate is killed and I just love the fact that we obviously have George Miller he's, he's never been afraid of obviously challenging people's beliefs or as I said they're by having strong female characters and I love the fact that they said oh George Miller's is a feminist as a result of him obviously creating Furiosa and I was thinking that well he's always had these strong characters and it's just remarkable as I said before that this is the point that we're focusing on with this film but it's getting people talking about it and it's sort of elevated in a way above being just another summer blockbuster it's giving the film a lot more depth and people are sort of studying it a bit Sort of deeper, which is always nice.
1: Exactly. Well, because we don't get many films like that, you know. I think again, it's why I think this, that, and *Ex Machina* are my number one and two because you can analyze them for for you know several hours. I mean, I've I've written about both, um, and and I mean, hell, I even wrote about *Tomorrowland*. So I mean, <laughs> movies for me that make me you know start analyzing, comparing to others. You know it's probably why if you look at my worst of the year so far list it's just you're like yeah there's really no no interesting conversation you can have with with those
0: films (laughs) just one sort of final point on the man max before completely mark out on it and i'm really sad that the fact that no one's picked up the fact it features nathan jones as the older brother the big uh, gigantic uh, muscly guy um who's in a number of things i mean he was in warrior king he was in troy and he was most memorably in fearless uh jet lee's supposed uh final martial arts movie we played hercules o'brien and again it was nice seeing him here he's actually got more of a talkative role proper role but uh no one seems to be mentioning him which was kind of a shame but i did uh like the fact that you've got the three the three sort of heads of state there and they all sort of represent different evils that you obviously got Immortan um, Joe who represents religion. you got his brother who recommends war. And then you've got the younger sort of uh, bloated brother who recommends, sort of represents greed. Um, and there's all these little touches that Miller sort of puts in there and he leaves it for the audience to sort of figure out for themselves. And say, So it gives you this surface story and then you've got these other little details that you can sort of take away from it. So.
1: Yeah, well, and you also have that with the, the, the female, the brides, quote-unquote, that the, they're trying to liberate. I mean, how, first of all, Rosie Huntington-Whitley, who I would have never thought, because, you know, she's a model and you don't yeah. ever think good things about models acting, um, but she did really well. I mean, she's kind of the, they, they mentioned that she's the favorite, She's because she looks like the perfect depiction of woman. And spoiler alert, dies first. I mean, so I think that it's interesting that from the get-go, the movie's saying, "Hey, those types of women are not going to last long here. We don't want them anymore." Um, so from there, you're getting this interesting rejection of of depictions of beauty, which I thought was was interesting. Not to mention, she's pretty much one of the bigger names. I from from what I recall when they were marketing it, um, and she lasts about what 15 minutes. <laughs>
0: I mean, she completely. I, I, she was probably the least person I was excited about on the cast. I mean, she does a very good job. I'm not going to take that away from her. But a lot of the actresses who playing the wives, they were kind of on the lower end of the excitement scale when it came to who was cast in this movie. Um, the fact- I had
1: no idea that that was. Um, I know they got what was it? Riley Keough plays the redhead. I had no idea that was her until like half an hour in. Yeah. And then uh, Zoe Kravitz is one of the one of them. And I, I mean, I was looking at them. I mean, that's that's a great thing where you're looking at an actor and you're not really immediately saying, Oh yeah, I know who that is. Mm. You know, where, where you're more invested in the performance and then you can go back and be like, Oh, they were in that movie. Had no idea.
0: That's the thing. I mean, I think I was more excited by the fact that Hughes, candy, uh, keys, Brian, who played toe Cutter in the first film, they brought him back as a completely different villain. Cause obviously we've got all this time that's passed. He's like an older actor. We can, he's hiding behind a mask. Haven't come back and play someone else. Which yeah, I'm, it's it's, kinda cool. it's
1: definitely worth it. If people haven't seen it, they need to go and go see it again.
0: <laughs> um, and obviously, Tom Hardy is Max. Um, your thoughts on on that, really?
1: Um, I I love Tom Hardy. I mean, i I've, I've seen Tom Hardy make good movies, bad movies, and This Means War. I mean, mm. so I I support him. Um, a lot of people are giving it guff for not really being a Mad Max movie. But I think that that's what makes his character so integral to the story. I mean, is that he's content to just have Shirley Theron's character, you know, deal with it. And he's, he's backup. You know, he's a, they're, they're a good partnership without kind of stepping on each other's toes.
0: Yeah. I think the fact that people can say that, I mean, Max, his character has always been the sort of guy who comes in. Apart from the exception of the first one, he's always been the guy who comes in and acts as the fixer. And all we've really seen in Fury Road is that we're shooting it really from a different angle, whereas before in like Road Warrior especially, where you see him driving the truck, it's about him getting the tanker. Um, here, we've obviously switched the focus slightly, so we're on Furiosa. And from that perspective, it's looking that it's no longer Max's movie, even though he's doing exactly the same as he's done in the previous films. It's just where Miller's choosing to focus this time is putting more Furiosa front and center while still keeping Max doing exactly the same, and I think that's led a lot of people to say that it's not Max's film. But for myself, it still played and felt like a Mad Max movie, and I was very happy with uh, what Hardy brought to the iconic role. Um, and I mean, he really is the human chameleon these days.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was. It all worked for me. I mean, I was. I, I'm still incredibly happy about. It. I've contemplated going to see it again. I just haven't had the time. But I know that that's one I'm gonna. I'm gonna be buying.
0: Yeah. I'm kind of too much. I want to go and see it again, but part of me is afraid that it's going to like shatter some illusion. That I'm going to go and see it, now, and I like realize it's not as good as I thought it was. So I'm kind <laughs> of like, don't want to go back in case that's what happens. But I'm hopefully going to get around to seeing it again at some point. Uh, but it's like like you said, it's just finding the time. There's just so many films to see, and so little time to do it.
1: So far, this summer's been pretty... I mean, I, I told people this when I... I started counting down my, you know, 10 of the year, which I, I start from the minute the year begins, you know, starts separating things into good and bad. And, I mean, it's it had been, it wasn't until June or, or May when Fury Road came out that I said, I finally have number one I'm proud of, you know. And even now, my best of list is one and two are really, really great. And then there's, like, a huge gulf between two and, like, the rest.
0: Obviously, outside of the mainstream releases, uh, you obviously... Still covering classic film over on your blog. Has there been any sort of finds that have uh, got you sort of excited or dismayed? Uh,
1: CCM is doing a uh, summer of darkness this year, which is a uh, two months of uh, film noir. So I've been trying to. They, they're doing uh, an interesting little online class, and um, I got to interview Eddie Muller, who is the host. So it's been it's been uh, not as noir friendly uh, prevalent as I wanted. But, you know, it's been great to interact with, with people online about it. Um, and then I I do a thing in July where I do um, five celebrities, five days, five films called the July Five. So I've been prepping prepping who to honor this year. Um, so it should be should be some good movies on the horizon for me.
0: Cool. And obviously, outside of your blog, I mean, you're obviously still doing the Walt Semi podcast with Todd, which is more recently you just had the leader of the Lamb cast, Jay, on to talk about No Country for Old Men, and continuing to surprise, really, just with the sort of films that you are covering for a Walt Disney podcast. Just the sort of films that do fall under that Disney banner.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the point of the podcast is not just focusing on stuff that is, you know, under Walt Disney Productions or Walt Disney Studio. I mean, we've been, we've done uh, Touchstone films, we've done Marvel, we've done we're uh, Pixar. Um, and this week we just recorded Hand the Rocks the Cradle, which is a Hollywood Pictures um, film, which was more of their genre label that they didn't do. They don't do it anymore. I think they dissolved it. Um, and then they also own Dimension and Miramax back back in the day. So it's been interesting finding movies that, you know, most people are surprised Like they have to re- we have to remind them, you know, this was a this type of uh, film in the, in the production. And then you can go from there and say, oh, yeah, so, it's been interesting, um, when we recorded the episode we just did, um, I had seen Hand the Rocks of the Cradle a bunch of times and Todd hadn't, so it was interesting to go, to have me being, you know, a female who had watched it from a young age to, you know, uh, a, a dad in his 40s who hadn't seen it before, <laughs> um, as I called him, he was, you know, he's a white male, so it's totally different for him to be, a different perspective for him to watch it, so, uh, it's been fun kind of testing testing uh, our comfort zones with, with which films we're picking. And I'm sure Todd thinks that my parents were like utterly crazy, permissive parents who let me watch anything when I was a kid. Um, whereas Todd will catch himself saying, you know, oh, my kids haven't watched them. Like, yeah, not everybody's parents were as permissive as
0: mine. <laughs> yeah, and as open-minded. I mean, that's what obviously amazes me about the American rating system is that even if a film, say for example, over here we have like fifteen and eighteen, even in the states, as long as you've got an adult or guardian, you can still go and see these films as a kid. I'm right in saying, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, I mean, anything that's NC seventeen, I think is the only time where you're not going to be able to bring uh, have a parent get you in. And we release those films so infrequently here because we suck. Um, so it's not like that's ever really a problem. I, I have, I mean, you could do a whole episode about my hatred towards the, the ratings board as it stands right now. I think it's ineffective and pointless. because I mean, you have no idea how many times I've gone to a movie theater and had parents bring their kids to it. I mean, my mom is one of those. She took me to go see the first scary movie when it came out. And I mean, I was an intelligent child. I knew it wasn't real. It was funny. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you get a lot of parents that, like, look at you like, oh, my God, you're a horrible, you know, horrible parent for letting your kid go to see this. Um, but, it, you know, it made me a film aficionado from a young age. I mean, I think the only, the only movie my mom made me wait to see was um, Pulp Fiction. I had to wait till I was about 15, 16 until I could <laughs> see that
0: understandably
1: <laughs> What? And now yeah I'm like now why would you wait why was that the film you drew the line on you know you, you took me as a, we all went as a family to go see 28 Days Later which if anybody's seen the opening shot of 28 Days Later that's an awkward film to go see with your parents <laughs>
0: <laughs> true true I can understand why uh, your you probably wanted you to see in Pulp Fiction at a young age um, you'd probably come out with some more colourful new words to say out that one
1: keep in mind keep in mind my mother also let me go see american beauty when it came out so i was about eight or nine when i went and saw that and i have to this day my mom and i have no idea why i wanted to go see it i just knew that i wanted to go see it yeah um and that was that was a fun conversation with my friend's parents who were just you know horrified that that my mom let me go see that although it's still one of my favorite movies of all time so
0: I can totally understand there, uh, understand why. I mean, when uh, my Beauty* came out, this would have been 1999. Again, it was one of those films where everyone seemed to be watching it, but no one seemed to know why they were watching it. Um, I know a lot of people had seen it, but I, for some reason, they never seemed to have any reason what sort of inspired them to watch it in the first place. And I think it was just because it was so at the front of sort of pop culture at the time. There were so many like references to like the flower petal sequence and that, so. I think that's probably why everyone wanted to go and see it. We've been somewhat hypnotized by these dream sequences.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely fun to kind of go back and, and look at my mom and be like, why? I can't believe I saw that when I did. And, you know, that I haven't become, like, some some weird psychopath, much like our main character in Welcome to the Dollhouse or
0: something. <laughs> um, before we obviously get on to the first of our, our selections this evening, and being that you are the Disney girl as well as the sort of classic cinema so sort of go, I thought, see what better sort of opportunity to test your Disney knowledge by just going over some Disney urban myths and you either tell me if they're Disney Disney urban myth or a Disney urban fact. Okay. okay. Right. so I've got a f- few of these and they vary just from the films and some stuff about the park. So we'll see how, how you go with this one. First one in Beauty and the Beast Belle can be glimpsed in a scene from the hunchback of Notre Dame that's true that is true she's in the uh, second musical number Um, yes there's also uh, the Lion King's Puma being carried by two men with a pole and uh, street merchant shaking out the flying carpet from Aladdin
1: yeah there's a lot of weird little references like I think you can go as far as uh, Frozen and see Rapunzel in the um, opening scene when uh Princess Anna comes out and starts singing, you can see them go in through the gate. So, yeah, uh, Pixar does that a lot, too.
0: Cool. Right. In the Disney nature documentary, White Wilderness, the filmmakers actually staged a lemming death scene.
1: I think that's true. It is true. Yes.
0: <laughs> <Where's> <laughs> Those still, you nature concealed...
1: films.
0: Oh, I mean, I was shocked. I mean, the fact is you can see this clip on on YouTube, so I will put it in the... Uh, the section below for anyone who does want to see it but uh yeah they actually went and set up their own lemming uh death scene so these were very different sort of times when they were making these sort of nature documentary i think this was 1958 when white wilderness came out right insane yes.
1: from from the studio that brought you the story of menstruation
0: that was actually my next one <laughs> um, <did> yes <laughs> Uh, Well, Disney
1: did do a documentary about your period, ladies. Yep,
0: on 1946, um, they gave us the animated film called The Story Administration. So, (laughs) how far they've come. At the Disney theme parks, if you see a Toy Story character and shout, Andy's coming, it will cause them to stop and drop.
1: They used to do that, but they don't anymore because of, I guess, safety restrictions.
0: Okay, that's true. I heard it was because students found out and they kept just, like, targeting the uh, Toy Story characters and shouting. Yeah,
1: well, I, that's, that's one thing, but I also heard, yeah, that it was more the safety of those costumes and getting back up.
0: <laughs> right. In the uh, Disney's New, New Orleans Square, there is a private club and it's the only place in the park where alcohol is served.
1: Yes, it's Club 33, although uh, Disneyland, um, I think California Adventure serves alcohol now, so it's not quite true, but Club 33 is still there.
0: This is amazing. I'm really surprised. I thought I would like totally catch up <laughs> on this, so you're doing very well on this. Um, <laughs> okay, the actual plane used in the film Casablanca is now part of the great movie ride attraction at Walt Disney World's Disney MGM Studios theme park. That's False.
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's what I heard. Is it wrong? Because that's what I heard. No, it is false. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. Obviously, in the film Casablanca, we've got Lockheed Electra 12A airplane. In the film Casablanca, they actually built a fake one uh, using balsa wood. So it wasn't a real plane. They just managed to... They found a plane with a matching serial number in real life, and they put it in the actual uh, theme park. But for the shooting of Casablanca on the soundstage, they couldn't fit a real plane in, so they just built... A sort of scaled down one so well done for that as well and last one walt disney arranged to have himself frozen in cryogenic chamber of liquid nitrogen upon his death and now awaits the day where medical technology makes his reanimation possible
1: there are countless people that still believe that's true but i'm of the school that says it's false
0: well, you've managed to beat every one of these today, so congratulations. I
1: was kind of waiting for the rescuers one, the immortal one about the rescuers having boobs in it, which is true.
0: <laughs> I mean, is this just some stuff that, being a Disney fan, that you sort of like have just picked up over time? Oh, yeah,
1: I, I, I mean, yeah. If, if anybody knows, I mean, I go to Disneyland. I try to go at least once a year um and i read everything i watch you know i did a whole disney vault series on my blog so i am i'm a disney geek of like the nth
0: degree okay i mean when we get because we're going to be recording a future episode in i think believe in july we're going to be sitting down with todd again uh to discuss the Beatles yellow submarine and the monkey's head um so we're gonna put we're gonna get him some facts about disney world and we're going to test him and see which of you is uh sort of the more knowledgeable but i think you certainly set an impossible bar there Kristen, with that one
1: heck yeah i'm totally gonna be todd
0: <laughs> so uh let the psych out begin <laughs> but um now Kristen's amazed us all with her disney knowledge we're going to go into the first film this evening which is todd Solon's welcome to the dollhouse released in 1995 this was really in the height of the independent cinema's Scene. The film itself follows Dawn Wiener, who is in the 7th grade and facing constant hassle from the other kids who frequently refer to as being Wiener Dog, A situation not especially helped by a nerdy older brother, a secondly sweet ballet obsessed younger sister, or the fact her parents want to tear down a special people's club clubhouse. She has no all this to contend with, while at the same time harboring a crush on Steve, the older guy in her brother's band. Uh, for those not familiar with Todd Solondz's work, he's the sort of director who likes to take a look at the darker side of life, as he really sort of established with this film, which was released with some controversy. Cisco and Egbert, uh, Ebert even, both loved this film and gave it high praise. Um, and then, as it's gone on, it's sort of become a very much a very cult cool film. Even though Solondz has gone more darker, the has gone in his career but in many ways this film has formed part kind of a spiritual prequel to the 2001 film uh, ghost world but opening thoughts in this film, christine what did you think of welcome to the doorhouse
1: uh this one was one that i um the the site i write for award circuit we're doing a um, 1995 award alternate awards thing and i wanted to do a review on this and just time didn't permit me but i've i've seen this twice and the, well, three times now. Um, but it had been easily about five years in between showings. Um, this is not a film that I think you can pop on and watch for kicks. Um, it's it's very much a black comedy in the bleakest sense that has some fantastic acting and some very... Um, I, I mean, Salons is so different, but I keep I compare him to Todd Haynes in many ways um, in terms of their kind of alternative hist- look at suburbia. And, and the, the lies we kind of tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, and watching this as an adult now, because I, I, last time I'd seen this I was probably in high school, I, I come at it differently. I see more of the ambiguity um, in, in everybody's characters, especially Dawn. I mean, Dawn is very much this outcast. But as an adult and you rewatch it, she kind of creates her own hell in certain instances. Um, but it's it's a really bleak and dark movie At the same time, I think it says a lot about, you know, the uncertainty of high school and and the stuff that essentially would be talked about, you know, a couple years later, post-Columbine. You know, you watch this and you're like, oh, Dawn and and Brandon are about an inch away from shooting up a high school. You know, you start (laughs) to wonder these things, especially after the the rash of school shootings that came out in the late 90s. So it's, it's an interesting movie, I think, that holds up very, very well, even though... I doubt it would have ever been made today in our, our current studio system.
0: It's, I believe that the system as it stands today, even for independent films, is a lot more restricted than it was certainly in the 90s. The 90s, you, you only have to look at some of the films you had coming up. You had people like Tarantino, you had Rodriguez uh, making their sort of first films around 92. So this is really sort of still riding on that sort of rave, rave uh, wave. Uh, you've got films like uh, Sex Lies in Videotape back in the sort of late '80s as well. So the sort of bar in terms of what was being censored and what you could and couldn't do on film was certainly a lot lower than it is uh, now. I mean, the, now you sort of do the slight thing controversial and you're sort of flagged up for it straight away. But I have to love the fact that this is really sort of the counter argument to those sort of sunny nostalgic childhood films. Uh, that tend to view school as being these happiest days of your life. And for myself, who didn't particularly enjoy school, I saw this as being a very realistic portrayal.
1: yeah, this is it this is be... not John Hughes.
0: You no, know,
1: even where, you know the girl, Molly Ringwall may feel like an outcast, she's still very pretty and still gets the guy at the end. No, this is none of that is here. I mean, and that's I think that's where salons is really kind of hitting home is the fact that so many people in this movie unflinchingly tell Dawn that they don't like her because she's ugly. I mean, and that's that's kind of the cold, harsh truth of of the the world that not only this movie is espousing, but I think the world in general is that you can get away with a lot, and you can be treated totally differently based on how you look. Um, And and that culminates with, you know, the, the relationship between her and her sister who even when her sister is kidnapped has a perfectly fine fun time eating McDonald's and watching television. I mean, yeah, it's and it's it's ridiculous. I mean, that's that's where I think this movie does so well. Is it takes these kind of elements of of real life and exaggerates them or I mean, I don't want to say exaggerate because it is very real in that regard, yeah. but extrapolates to kind of this almost absurdist Kind of limit, um, where it, whereas where it's almost hyperbolic, um, but at the same time it's it's very realistic in what the the truths it's telling.
0: I mean, it's funny you should obviously mention the the kidnapping, which comes really sort of towards the end. It feels very much like an afterthought. It's one of the few aspects of this film I didn't like. It felt like he was just including it, especially because it contains very paedophile sort of undertones to the whole kidnapping the fact that she talks about how a kidnapper just made her do ballet routines um, and you're thinking well has this got any sort of purpose or is this just additional shock I love that just the opening scene especially it just shows where he's coming from where she's in the cafeteria and she's offered a seat but she's then told that it's only there because some kid threw up on it earlier and i a- can't help but when I'm watching this to obviously see the films which it did inspire, as we mentioned already, like why Gilliam's *The Ghost World* or *Napoleon Do- Dynamite*. I think owe a great debt to this film because it is obviously giving that that alternative take. But as she said, already really Dawn, she's an outcast, but in many ways she's chosen to to make herself an outcast. Um, she. Yeah. She well, I mean,
1: to to go back to to the the kidnapping point, I mean. It's definitely one of those where it's interesting to contrast that with the actual scene of the girl telling her story about, you know, strangers and how she, she was kidnapped, but at the same time, she's very aesthetically pleasing. You know, it, go, it goes back to kind of my issues with Gone Girl in terms of how we advertise and, and the media perpetuates these kind of um, photogenic kidnap victims. I mean, the, the sister Missy is very cute. And even though her story—I mean, Don asks her brother, well, was she raped? Well, no, he just filmed her doing some ballet, and she was able to eat McDonald's, and she had control of the pusher, the the remote control. Um, I mean, it's very much this type of kidnapping that would never exist in real life, but it goes back to Missy just being—having it so easy, Um, which goes back to that kind of hyperbolic statement that, you know, eldest kids always say, and I agree— Um, as an eldest child myself, that, you know, the youngest have life so easy. And that's very true in this case, only here it's taken to the extreme and still shown to be so rosy. Um, And, I mean, even stuff like Napoleon Dynamite has... doesn't have that kind of depressing air that this does. Um, I mean, I don't think there's been a movie that's shown just how depressing... Not only you know, adolescence can be, but how it really goes back to something like, um, I mean, really bowling for Columbine is what I I immediately think of in terms of the fact that Dawn doesn't have anybody to tell her issues to. Nobody cares. I mean, that that is what it boils down to. Um, and yeah, she does kind of, and I, I said that in the beginning, I think she creates her own hell in certain regards. Um, specifically when when Missy comes in and tells her the first time that she's not allowed to drink in the TV room, and Dawn calls her a lesbo. And, of course, the the little girl tattles on her, and the mom calls her into the room, and I love that we don't have the camera follow her. The camera sits out in the living room, but we hear her say, well, she was bothering me, much like a child would say. I mean, she's very much... In this kind of delayed adolescence, she still wears, you know, footy pajamas that zip up the front. Um, you know, she doesn't really make that effort to evolve, almost.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Also, again, you said that when she goes as a sister, a lesbo, and the dialogue in this film constantly gets brought up whenever. I talk to people, and they get really offended because you've got the students here offend to each other as being retards or faggots, and I think it was Ebert in his review, and he said, "Well, this is how kids talk."
1: That, that's very true. I have a seventeen-year-old brother, and you would be shocked to hear the things that him and his friends say. That is both, you know, sexist, homophobic, racist in certain regards, and they just—I think it's that concept that Salons is saying that kids use words. They don't understand the implications of those words. I mean, I think it goes back. It goes to Brandon's um, quote-unquote attempts to date Dawn by threatening to rape her. <laughs> I mean, that's the when when I talk about this movie to people, especially females, that's immediately what they bring up is the fact that he threatens to rape her. And it's a horrid scene, um, especially because, you know, um, the actor, Brandon Sexton III, um, who would go on to play a heinous character in Boys Don't Cry, um, I mean, he looks very much, he's that school bully. Even though he's very unassuming-looking, he looks like an average teenager, which I I love about the movie, that they got teens that look like average kids. But really, when you start to think about it, and they start to hang out more, He's trying to ask her out. He just doesn't understand how to go about it. And so I think that, you know, that what the script really captures is that teens use these words to make themselves feel like adults, but they don't understand what they're saying.
0: No, not at all. I mean, obviously you've had sex and the fact that he says, oh, I'm going to rape you after school. But he has no sort of connotation to what their words means. It's just something openly threatening, of he's heard and he feels that this is his way to sort of big himself up. And it's so bizarre seeing Sexton playing this role, especially because I've become so used to associating him with uh, the shoplifter in Empire Records. Um, oh, so, that's
1: right, that's right. <laughs> so
0: it's it's so bizarre to see him actually like coming out and, and threatening to rape her. but how unfazed she is. She just, she just basically looks at him and goes, okay. And you're wondering what sort of mindset is sort of writing this, but again, it comes back to that co- comment about how these kids, what they call each other and how they talk. If we look at films like Juno, like Dawson's Creek, that you've got these kids that are like doing these like long, drawn-out, pop-cultured...
1: Philosophical, yeah, po- quirky sort of type of and monologuing.
0: And this isn't how kids talk. I mean, anyone who's got an Xbox Live and copy of gta would tell you exactly how kids talk as offensive as it it is and obviously when you hear people using the word faggot especially especially in these more open-minded times it certainly carries a lot more offence than it did probably when the film was released back in 95 well uh, and what's
1: what's it goes back towards i mean the the kind of central thesis of the movie is that you know abuse trickles down downhill i mean when when um Brendan finally gets mad because John says she's in love with somebody else um, and he kind of quote unquote breaks up with her um, her, little, her friend Ralphie shows up who's younger than her um, and she calls him a faggot and it, it's that kind of sad realization that because she can't lash out at anybody in her sphere of influence she lashes out at the person who is you know younger and weaker than her you know the one person that she can probably think that is you know less than her um, and so it it just kind of emphasizes that this string of of bullying really perpetuates itself, um, you know, through a hierarchy.
0: Yeah, and with the Dawn's crush being Steve, who's uh, plays in her brother's band. Uh, I have to say the the whole angle with the brother's band—they have like one rehearsal, and then they suddenly become this the band to go to if you've got like a bar mitzvah or a wedding <laughs> or something and they've like seemingly got one song, and let alone someone on a clarinet. Probably the most unrock sub sort of instrument you got going, but
1: Well and her brother I think I, I don't think there's been as much emphasis on on her brother Mark in this movie. He's kind of the person that has it all figured out almost. He realizes that high school sucks adolescence is terrible and all you can really hope for is to get into a good college and make something of yourself then you know I, I he's kind of that neutral party where he's not necessarily good or bad but he does seem to have his eye on the prize that will hopefully make everything better
0: yeah and i would say we've the fact that um, he has Steve, and this is again something that I found very surprising—the fact that Steve's willing to associate uh, himself with her brother. Um, we look at the other three people in their band, and they're all sort of very, sort of typical, sort of nerdy, sort of kids. Yet they've somehow managed to recruit the cool guy. From the well, sport.
1: they mentioned they mentioned that he's he's gonna get Steve an A in computer science, so he's doing it to pass a class.
0: Okay, and I love the fact that when. Because Dawn obviously has a crush on Steve, but she has no way of expressing it. So she has all these scenes of real sort of like clumsy seduction, where she basically plies him with food when he comes around Because she has no sort of concept of how to sort of flirt or how to react around him. So her sort of go-to thing is just to constantly keep playing with snacks and and sort of reacting. So glee uh, and admiration to every little thing he says
1: yeah her 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 moments with him i think are for me i i don't know if it's because i'm a girl are the most awkward because it's really emphasizing the sad fact that most high school boys are stupid um no disrespect to high school boys listening to this who would say they aren't but <laughs> uh, we all know there's kind of you know it, it, you gotta be hot um and dawn I mean, I think that that's a a key element. Her wardrobe in this movie, she wears these kind of very unattractive little girl t-shirts, really dumpy looking like sweatpants, or um, and she's always got her hair tied back. I mean, mm. she she's confident in the fact that she has no inability to talk to him. Which you know is you would think that confident. What do they always say? Confidence is key. She can talk to him and carry on a conversation. Which for most would be the hardest part. But she doesn't do anything that doesn't sound, everything sounds very much like a child. It's very stilted, um, very kind of whiny, almost, you know, stay, I can do this, I can do it better, I can do it right. Um, Not realizing that he's, you know, a 17, 16 year old boy, I don't know how old they say he is. And he's just interested, I think the brother says it perfectly, he's horny. You know, he's interested in having sex. He doesn't want – he's not at that point where he's going to look at a nice girl and be like, oh, yeah, well, she's not beautiful, but she's sweet. You know, personality. Yeah. That's not what he's looking for. And I think it says something that she goes and asks, you know, that the other girls that she interviews kind of in in the school are dating older guys. They're dressed like – you know, I think one of the characters is actually called Lolita. Um, you know, it's that kind of sexualizing of, of little girls that, again, want to be adults and aren't really understanding what that means.
0: She's such an awkward character. It's almost as if he's, when Solence has been creating this character, that he's gone for how can we make this character as awkward and hard to sort of root for as possible. Uh, the fact that she seems almost unfazed of the fact that that the way to get Steve to sort of like it is to be easy. I, I think it's just how little sort of faces are. All these things that I don't know if it's obviously because we're looking at it from a sort of grown-up perspective that we find these things sort of shocking or and that if we obviously from her sort of viewpoint that that would be sort of like less shocking but to see this go in the seventh grade who in many ways is obviously sees no problem and obviously putting herself out there and sort of gives no regard to her own personal sort of worth. It's so very uncomfortable to watch at times, but you're still at the same time rooting for this character to come good in the end.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's telling that two years after this, um, we would get another Lo- a film version of Lolita that was, a, was more, was able to be more sexually explicit than the Kubrick version. Mm. Um, but even then, I mean, the Lolita, as we've come to see that character, is you know the the beautiful young girl that yeah she's underage and it's wrong, but she's she's hot, and Salons is trying to show you how disturbing that mentality should be, you know, for people. Um, that you know, Missy is is very cute, not not beautiful, but she's very cute and again very innocent, and becomes the victim of of a crime that really in the grand scheme of things, she kind of makes out like a bandit, but at the same time, there's still a why. you know, why is she still a victim? It's because of how she looks. Whereas Dawn almost wants to be that victim because it would give her, it would give her recognition. It would give her, you know, she would be thought of by people, um, even though it would be demeaning to her, you know, who she is. Um, And I mean, she's a character that you root for her because she tries so hard to do the right thing, um, you know, based on what her parents want, what's you know, the, the society of her school wants, and she never gets it quite right. She goes to save her sister, goes to New York to save her sister, quote-unquote, they found her tutu there, and is gone for days. Nobody notices she's missing or really cares because Missy comes back, and... You know, she dreams of getting this recognition where people say they love her and comes home to absolutely nothing changing.
0: Yeah. Again, this sort of uh, brings around that same sort of comment that of obviously how you want to see Dawn sort of achieve to sort of come good by the end. You want to
1: tell everybody off. Like, that's what I wanted. It's her (laughs) to just, like, have a fit and tell everybody what she thought of them.
0: Yeah. You've gotten sort of, I think, even though... The film has an ending. It's certainly not a sort of shiny happy ending where everything's sort of tied up. It sort of has its ending, and it's sort of left at that. And you've left with the feeling that she would sort of like go on to better things, and those who tried to drag it down would like end in menial jobs with failed dreams. And but the ironic thing is that Solon's for his own sort of like twisted reasons, um, felt that. Dawn shouldn't have this happy ending because we obviously revisit her character in Palindromes in 2004, um, and it reveals that basically she went to college, gained a lot of weight, and committed suicide. But then again, someone doesn't really do happy go lucky movies, as I've said before.
1: Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that that he he had made kind of a quote unquote spiritual type of, <laughs> of sequel. sequel. Um, but I mean, yeah, the way the way this ended for me was she had made one slight change to her routine. She had talked about how she didn't wanna go to Disney World. She didn't wanna go, she didn't wanna go, and at the end, she does go, which I think is her kind of way of saying, okay, maybe I'll try something different. Maybe things will be different if I am different. But at the same time, there is that air of uncertainty that she doesn't need, she doesn't need to be different. Unfortunately, the world also needs to change with her. You know, it's not enough for her to change. The way that her family, you know, her parents are to her needs to change. The way that society perceives her needs to change. And that, that might never happen. So you do kind of end on this air of ambiguity and frustration and, you know, sadness um, that is never really resolved. And, and that's where I think most people get turned off by this movie is that, unlike most movies that have a clear-cut resolution... This leaves you on a very dour note.
0: It's... I think this has always been the sort of trademark of Sullivan's work, is that he's making films essentially for himself, um, and if that you're able to find a way to get on board with his bleak world v- vision, then all the more power to you. But he's not going to... You get the thing that he's very much not going to change the way he, he feels that the story should be told. I feel that this is also one of the easiest films in his back catalogue to get into. Um, I certainly wouldn't like be attempting to uh, take on the likes of storytelling or happiness as your first entry into this world. Certainly not Dark Horse, um, which would probably be your first and only sort of entry into the son's world. So, in a way, this is lighter than we would normally expect from him. Um, but at the same time, there's so many things which have become sort of resonant with his work. Uh, and i kind of have to respect the fact that he is here basically doing something that is very unique. Um, and the fact that he has obviously created this, this truly unique character and the fact that in a way he's obviously sparked other films to sort of carry on the story in their own sort of ways. I mean, just obviously looking at the cat, looking at the character, I mean, I can't help but feel that in many ways we've got the spiritual sequels with Dawn obviously being seventh grade. From here, we obviously can look at Daria, and then we can obviously, which would take be sort of like the later years in high school, and then we can obviously finish high school with Ghost World. And although we've got these three different female characters, in many ways they're all essentially Dawn in different stages of her life. I don't know what your sort of feelings are. Whether you see that link or if it's just myself. Well,
1: I was I was gonna say I think it's interesting too, and, and it's one of the reasons why I don't think we would ever see a movie like this because it is so unenthusiastic about adolescence and high school and really growing up in general you know it does not have good thoughts about that which we want our teen movies to have some type of hope you know some type of hope so that you know our children will watch this and feel that you know life gets better or you know that you're going to find a job after high school or you're going to be accepted this movie doesn't give you those answers and i think it's why we probably would never see something as bleak as this again. I mean, if you think about the other teen movie that came, that kind of solidified '95, clueless. Yeah. I mean, blonde hair, beautiful girls, wealth, um, you know, this kind of concept that it didn't matter if you were stupid, um, you could still better yourself and get everything that you wanted. Um, and, and really, I think most teen movies since this have had that similarly upbeat. Kind of look, even if it's a bleak movie, um, you know, something like, um, you know, Juno, teen pregnancy, there's an upside to that. Um, hell, even something like The Fault in Our Stars, which I despise, despise <laughs> passion. Cancer has an upside because you can find a guy. Um, I, so I don't think, I, I definitely agree with something like Daria and Ghost World kind of being in that same type of school. But even then, I think they end with that air of of hope and and enthusiasm for the rest of, of life that this kind of doesn't give you.
0: Really, because I would have said Ghost World again. It ends on this very it sort of abrupt note. It's, um, it's
1: definitely melancholy. I would definitely say it ends on a very kind of bittersweet note. Um. So yeah, I guess I guess thinking of it right now, yeah, I, I definitely think it's probably the closest we would get to this.
0: Yeah. I've also, also, obviously, just going off the points that you've made, I think all this really tracks down to the fact that we can blame John Hughes for basically screwing up the team <laughs> I think because of John Hughes, we now expect people to be walking on the fit, football pitch, punching the air, that all our problems can somehow be solved as long as we've got a big enough bag of weed. And, that, and
1: as long as you're white.
0: Yeah, and, as, and that the boy we like is going to pick us up on his ride-on mower and screw up the end of easy as well.
1: Um. Hey, you know what? Jake Ryan could still come for me. I'm just saying. I'm 26, <laughs> and I still hold on to that hope. Okay.
0: <laughs> um. But, and I mean, even when you like go into like the 90s, so the late 90s and 2000, and we've got films like American Pie. Again, at the end, we've got that very happy, upbeat ending. You know, everyone's got laid, we all can hang out and have hot dogs and go on for to college and that. And oh, well, you- I think
1: I think the closest. Thing. I, I don't think we'd seen a movie as bleak as Welcome to the Dollhouse until um, uh, until 2003 when uh, Gus Van Zandt did Elephant, oh, which, that's a- which is a very different type of high school movie um, in terms of the fact that it's almost kind of that documentary, fictionalized documentary look reenacting a high school shooting, and you didn't really learn about the kids per se, you kind of only got glimpses into that one specific day but it certainly doesn't end with with you know everybody kind of losing their virginity and having fun. It ends <laughs> as realistically as you would expect a movie about a school shooting to end. Yeah. Um, so I mean, really, I don't think we got a movie that even touched on any of the sadness and you know finality of of Welcome to the Dollhouse until then. And even then, I don't think we've had anything that touched on Elephant since.
0: I think no, I think Elephant uh, would be. The last one, um, we obviously had Zero Day, which came out at the same time. But in many ways, that felt like a very much like a rip off of Elephant. Um, Elephant again is very sort of similar to this film in the fact that you have scenes such as the uh, sort of popular girls, there, sort of buying lunch, eating a bare minimum of it, and then discussing whether they're going to throw up now or throw up later. Uh, it's to- very
1: much yeah. It's just it's very much a movie that captures. You know, there are scenes in Welcome to the Dollhouse that really serve no purpose other than kind of introducing, you know, this person's life. I mean, I think that that's where, where Salons really gets it, showing the day-to-day. Not what's important always, you know, but the minutiae. And that's where I think Van Zant also did well, is that, you know, he's he's just kind of, you can get enough of the characters through what they talk about and how they interact with others. You don't really need to see every beat having some type of big revelation. It's more following a trajectory and seeing how things intersect.
0: Um before we obviously wrap this one up, I mean there's obviously the fact is brought up that the knock on effect i thought that obviously when we say we're going to talk about Welcome to the Doorhouse, and initially you obviously mind goes to those indie films and obviously it's spiritual sequels, but the fact that we can compare it to, obviously, the John Hughes movies, the sort of team movies which followed, has been absolutely fascinating to discuss. The soundtrack, I just want to, obviously, discuss quickly. Uh, what's your, obviously, thoughts on the soundtrack? I personally thought there's a lot of uh, exciting stuff on there, including the title track, uh, Welcome to the Dollhouses," certainly in my, uh, my running playlist.
1: Yeah, this, I... I didn't really immediately think of the soundtrack until I started listening, you know, as a a child, you don't really think of how, oh, well, how does it sound? Um, but yeah, I definitely think what's interesting is, is this movie never specifies what time period we're in. Um, and you're kind of led to believe that it might be some element of modern day, maybe not, and the soundtrack more than anything, especially with the songs that, um, Mark and Steve perform, have this very weird '70s type of psychedelic feel, um, that kind of makes you think it's this kind of of another era. Yeah, um, it's almost—it's very trippy, almost.
0: It is uh, it is really bizarre um, sort of soundtrack. The fact that the soundtrack also includes the song from his parents' uh, wedding anniversary—the sort of Jewish song that they go into—so even if you buy the soundtrack, it sort of goes from these sort of like punky sort of songs to sort of more sort of grungy sounds like as I said the opening the title track Welcome to the Dollhouse and then you have like these weird little asides like uh there's such sort of more traditional Jewish song that they're performing at the performing at the uh, wedding um vows renewal uh these parents are holding there but it's uh I think it holds up still well I know a lot of these films from the sort of 90s they Kind of age like especially films in the 80s. Again, they age horribly in <laughs> soundtrack wise, unless it's something that sort of stands out as being a particular classic. So,
1: yeah, I, again, I, I bring up I'm one of those where you know it doesn't need to immediately date itself by having songs specifically of the era, but mm-hmm. if you're from, especially, I mean. But you don't want to date yourself with songs exclusively from that era, unless it is meant to be a period piece. I think of, again, something like Pitch Perfect 2, which dates itself by only having songs that are probably from the top 40 in the last two years. Yeah. So I guarantee you, in 20 years when people are watching Pitch Perfect 2, they're going to be like, what is this music? You know, there's no there's no diversity, whereas Welcome to the Dollhouse, at least because it's an indeterminate era you can kind of play around with it and still get the gist of how the music interacts with what's going on
0: yeah i have to uh, after do you really think people are going to still be wanting to watch pitch perfect 2 in 20 years from now
1: probably not i'm giving it way too much credit but
0: <laughs> i mean <laughs> who knows it this... might be
1: pitch perfect 85 by you know the, by 20 years from now that would require a lot of of moving but yeah
0: oh it's I mean, what are we up to with Fast and Furious? Are we up to seven or eight now? Something. Eight.
1: Eight. I think it's eight.
0: So, I think if we can manage eight Fast and Furious movies, I think...
1: Yeah, both perfect. of our movies today... Well, uh, Showgirls has a sequel, but I prefer to pretend it doesn't exist.
0: It does. I only found out about that recently, so... Uh, that oh, but for- I
1: can mention... I've seen it. I've endured it. And it's... I'll bring it up when the time comes, cause yeah, it's
0: obviously, final thoughts on on uh, welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, is there anything else you want to discuss about this one?
1: Ah, uh, you know, I think we hit on everything. It's one of those movies where you really have to be in the right frame of mind. I mean, yeah. I, I I stress this enough. It's not depressing, like watching something like, you know, into the wild where the last hour is watching somebody starve to death. Um, you know, it's not 12 Years a Slave where it's just depressing because of, of what the atrocities, but it's, it's it's bleak in just how uncompromising it is and how, how you know, real it makes things while at the same time kind of elevating them and showing them to be how ridiculous they are. You know, we shouldn't have these issues, and yet we do. Um, but it is good to see that Heather Matarazzo was able to cast off being wiener dog oddly enough the princess diaries is on right now so I am looking at her all grown up and yeah so she had a good career I mean I I'm proud that she was able to not be typecast by that role.
0: It all came out good for her in the end then so.
1: <laughs> exactly. I, I we'll ignore her work in Hostel too.
0: Oh that's so right it just dawned on me now it's like when you realize that the girl from Blossom is now in the Big Bang Theory Oh, the fact that she's a PhD in neurobiology—that's actually she has a real yes, doctorate. Yes,
1: that's true. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like watching um, Boy Meets World and realizing that the girl who was Rachel was one of the white chicks girls in that horrid white chicks movie.
0: Yeah, Boy Meets Boy Meets World is something that I think we're going to have to discuss on the podcast because if we get into that, then it, I think. The rest of the podcast is just me going to be ranting about how much I uh. hate this show.
1: <laughs> yes, next episode, I come on. We need to do a whole Boy Meets World retrospective.
0: <laughs> According and Panga, it didn't make sense.
1: It, it really didn't. Well, Topanga's character, remember when she was a hippie? I missed that. Yeah. Then she just became an average girl.
0: So, yeah, it, it just annoyed me with that one. The fact that, that suddenly, oh, we need a love interest for Corey. And then she's talking about in love interest how much you like loved him like from when they were like small children it's like you ignored him for the first season it was only when the writers needed like some chick to hook him up with
1: or the fact that you know they they wanted to get married in high school you're like that's ridiculous
0: and oh but that was a very 90s thing yes yes oh been dating a while gotta get married now
1: well or i mean i'm one of those where i've i've talked about you know the homoeroticism in boy meets world Sean and Corey needed to just have sex with each other. Then that would have solved everything, we all know they wanted to. <laughs> um, but I have the same problems with something like Full House, which I'm a huge Full House fan. And the plot holes and the gaps and that, I mean, how, does, how did they afford that house in San Francisco when Joey was in between jobs all the time? So, I mean, I <laughs> there's a whole thing I could talk about. 90s sitcoms and my problems with them.
0: Um, for myself, uh, final thoughts on just welcome to the Dollhouse. I do feel that if you're someone who's into film, or you're at the point where you're starting to sort of get into into film, then this I would recommend as essential viewing. Certainly when I started myself to get really sort of into film, this was a film I was recommended amongst others like Todd Browning's Freaks, which we have discussed previously, as um, as being a film that you had to sort of watch and and understanding it was sort of like required reading so to speak or required viewing I think would be more appropriate um, and I feel it still stands up it's an important film even if it's very cult it's very dark and warped so you're either going to have a blast of it or be completely bummed out by the end of it but you know at least you have seen something different and that at the yes. end of the day is the whole point of the MBDS list you know we're corrupting you each podcast two films at a time so um but uh yeah further viewing. if you liked uh Welcome to the Dollhouse or want to see something similar where, where would you go next chris
1: Um you know I, I mean if we're going off of Welcome to the Dollhouse specifically I would definitely say the the films we we mentioned um you know Ghost World Elephant um again they're you know definitely going to depress you um although I think I think uh Ghost World pl- plays um pretty pretty comedically for yeah majority of the time um i'm trying to think of just some other kind of bleak heathers is another one
0: that was where um, i was gonna go yeah Heather's. yeah it.
1: heathers is definitely um again more comedic um and again a bit more upbeat at the end even though it's a massacre by the end of it but um it's it's really 80s um and it's really fun so those are definitely must-sees
0: Plus, you get to see crazy Christian Slater and uh, Winona Ryder when she was sort of the height of her career, so...
1: Yes, Christian Slater in the only movie where I've ever said, I'd go there. And now I just kind of, like, throw open my mouth every time I see him now. But there was once a time, people. It's hard to think of now, but there was once a time.
0: Okay, what about True Romance Slater, though?
1: <laughs> what?
0: What about Christian uh, Slater and True Romance?
1: Uh, no, see, not my thing, not no. my thing See, then show, it's again, not True Romance you. I only watched True Romance for Gary Oldman Which was a mistake But <laughs> <laughs> But that's why I watched it you
0: see, now I just kind of want to go through The many phases of Christian Slater I mean, I'll put the volume <laughs> Christian Slater uh,
1: <laughs> We could just go through the many phases of Gary Oldman That would be just as fun too, so
0: Okay Right, we're going to take a quick break uh, while I uh, go through the many phases of Gary Oldman with Kristen. Um, When we return, we will be discussing the second film this evening, Showgirls. You are about to witness
1: history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases. We don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look
0: for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. And we're back. Uh, still joining me in the shooter this evening is Kristen. I'm so
1: sad that we didn't get to talk about Gary Oldman's work in Boston Space. <laughs> <laughs>
0: soon <laughs> i know it's going to no doubt come up in a future books. i think it is on the list somewhere in there i know gary oldman has definitely got more than a couple of titles on there so i think we have to do a gary oldman special and we'll just talk around the many many faces of gary oldman <laughs> obviously in the first half of the podcast we discussed welcome to the Dollhouse. still in 95 we're now going to obviously move on to the erotic drama um showgirls directed by paul vernerhoven and written by Joe Estevez. Is that how you pronounce his name? Esther Haas. Esca Haas? Yes. Who at one point was one of the highest paid screenwriters in yes. Hollywood. I, um,
1: I recommend anybody who wants to to read just a really balls-out biography. Read Joe Esther Haas's biography. He is so self-important and thinks so well of himself. <laughs> um, but it's hilarious at the same time because he has he gives no fucks about naming names and talking about how awful this movie was and his background. I mean, he came from, you know, immigrant parents. It's a very weird read, but a delightfully enjoyable. One.
0: Mm. I mean, I've just recently got um, a hold of a copy of the book he did when he was working with uh, Mel Gibson, uh, which is called heaven and Mel. And this... Oh,
1: I wanted to read that. I didn't read that yet.
0: Yeah. He, uh, th- this is one of his many wild claims that at one point he was so scared of working uh, with Gibson, who at this point was sort of going off the deep end, that he took to uh, sleeping with a golf club because he was that sure that Gibson was going to come and attack him in his sleep. Wow, and, uh,
1: yeah, that, that sounds like him. He, all, he has very grandiose claims. Like he claims that Elizabeth Berkeley came up and introduced themsel- herself to uh, him and his wife with no top on. Yeah, I can believe I f- that, but I don't really know if I believe him telling me that.
0: Okay, I mean, let's just look at his his little uh, filmography. First of all, we've obviously his most I think noteworthy film on there is Flashdance back in eighty three. Yes. Um, from there, it's a lot of sort of hit and misses until we really get to ninety two where we got Basic Instinct. We've also got Nowhere to Run, which is ninety three. Um, then it really goes downhill. Um, as we got Sliver uh, in '93, we've also got Showgirls '95, and Jade, uh, which again was '95, so he did the double header there of erotic thrillers. And from there, he's sort of really done nothing of note, I would yeah, say.
1: Yeah, and, and according to him, he claims it's all studio interference, and it's other people's fault. It's not his fault that his movies haven't made money, it's everybody else's fault.
0: Yeah. Um, as we no doubt cover in this. I, I think this is not going to be the last we're going to be discussing his work on this film um
1: yeah well paul verhoeven i mean as a director was also had done basic instinct with him so they had kind of uh, kind of knew what the other was going to bring to the table
0: yeah and the film itself uh, follows no Ni- Ni- no is it naomi or nomi 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 malone yes. um who hitchhikers into Las Vegas, and she's hoping to make it as a a showgirl, as you do. Basically, she gets into town. She has all her money um, and worldly possessions stolen by the man who gave her a lift in sun in the first place. So she's completely broke, and she ends up working at the Cheetah Topless Club, and eventually manages to work her way into um, a sort of a topless review. Uh, called Goddess at the uh, Stardust and here she sort of works her way at vying for that position of top girl within the uh, production. Most noteworthy for starring Elizabeth Berkeley who let's not forget was in Saved by the Bell as Jessie, right insane saying? Yes,
1: she was Jessie Spano on, uh, on
0: so, uh, Saved by the Bell. And uh, in Saved by the Bell, for those who aren't familiar with it, so if you were obviously born after the 90s uh, she was the good girl. She was like yes.
1: one with
0: a good grade. She was the feminist. Yeah, <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> she ain't a good girl in on this one. No. This one is the first time watching myself, and is a film. Whenever I've had female critics on uh, the show, it always seems to be their favourite film. Uh, B J. Colangio said it was one of her favourites. Uh, you've obviously picked it as one of your favourites. Emily uh, from Deadly Door House of Horror Nonsense again has named it as being one of her favourites. I have to ask, what is it about this film that appeals to female uh, bloggers and critics so much?
1: I, I think it's gotten a re, re-examination since it came out. When it came out, it was cited as, you know, a huge... It, it was going to revitalize the NC-17. It was, you know, going to make it mainstream, which... The NC-17, as we knew it back in the 90s, was um, hope, was trying to shy away from the X rating, which have kind of been commandeered by porn. So, the NC17 was supposed to be for classy fare that just happened to have a lot of sex and nudity in it. And I think before that we had stuff like Henry and June um, that had used the NC17. The fact that this flopped pretty much ruined the NC17 for everybody until Shane came along. Um, but it it got a, you know attacked for depictions of women, um, you know, how the the nudity was gratuitous. And I think it's been it got a re-examination, especially by female writers, for the fact that it is a predominantly female-based film about women seeking power and kind of re trying to re-jigger um, the sex market for their own ends. It's also, I mean, Esther Haas wrote it to be a kind of homage to All About Eve, <laughs> which yes. if anybody knows All About Eve, the Betty Davis and Baxter movie... Where Betty Davis plays a um, aging A-list star who is usurped by a young neophyte. Um, and you see that play out here, um, with Naomi Malone being our Ann Baxter and Crystal Connors played by Gina Gershon, being our, our Margot Channing. Um, but I think for for me at least, I can't speak for for women all over the board, it's campy with kind of this over the top decadent glitz to it um, you have really weird moments of issues that you think want to be called called truth about you know the sex industry and about strippers and and all of that that just come off so bad um, but what it comes down to is is I think it's fun watching these two women try to... Kind of climb the same ladder and step all over each other to do it um, in a way that's just so over the top. I mean, it's it's like watching something like Mommy Dearest. You know, you're watching a movie that's ridiculous, but at the same time, it's again much like Welcome to the Dollhouse, showing these things that are exaggerated to the point of breaking. I mean, it's taking that whole competition between women for power and taking it down this crazy road and pushing it to the limit and doing a hilarious job.
0: Yeah. I love the fact that Verhoeven, when he was obviously coming up with the film, he was discussing it with uh, Essa and he'd said that he'd always loved like the big MGM musicals. And then Esser's obviously scribbled the idea for this film on a napkin. And for that, he was advanced $2 million to come up with the script for this. I mean, he then had picked up an additional 1.7 million, when the studio actually produced it into a film. And I mean, this is like a real three a, a films that he did sort of off the bat for Van hope I mean, obviously the Basic Instinct for this. He did uh, Sliver as well. And it was from the those three films that he obviously became the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood history. Um, I don't know how they could have gone from MGM musical to this film basically about strippers.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's where it's it's interesting. And I, I mentioned that this movie kind of wants to have these grand moments of truth. Uh, because we have Goddess, the, the show that um, Crystal Connors is in, which is a topless review. But I'm not really sure what the narrative is, because we have both a wedding scene, some weird type of s and a Dawn of Man moment. And I kind of want to see the whole show play out to see how those three scenes pay off. Whereas at the same time, Nomi is dancing at the cheetah. I wanted to say the hippo, and then I realized that's date night, not not showgirls. Um, She's at the cheetah, which, according to Crystal, she says, well, if you're at the cheetah, you're not dancing. And so it's kind of got this distinction between What is considered appropriate for women to get naked for money, and what isn't? Um, And I don't think the movie sufficiently answers that, but I like that it questions it. Um, Because Nomi's whole thing is, I'm not a whore. She says that like 18 times in the movie. Um, And other characters say, well, yeah, you are. And by the end, when we learn about her background, she was a prostitute, which is a whore. Um, so, I mean, she's, she's got that kind of, I want to cast off my past and start a new thing, so, which we like from our heroes. But at the same time, I, I've, I've made this grand comparison and people look at me in horror. Nomi Malone is the Scarlet O'Hara of the nineties. Yes. I compared Girls to Gone with the Wind, um, in that Nomi is a horrible person, much like Scarlet O'Hara who people just really want to do nice things for and you're never really sure why because she yeah. does absolutely nothing nice for them except maybe have sex with them
0: um i mean so, I have to, yeah i mean on. you said that she is a horrible person i remember when we were doing the pre-notes for this episode and i think i was only about halfway through it and i'd send you a message i was like why am i watching this no, no one is a horrible horrible person yeah, I she is. She
1: is horrid, and I think that what you're waiting for, much like with Dawn in in Welcome to the Dollhouse, you're waiting for some type of comeuppance, and that never really happens. Actually, she curses everybody else in her life, but nothing bad ever happens to her. Yeah. Um, you know, her best friend gets raped. Crystal Connors ends up in the hospital. Um, you know, even even the guy James that she wants to teach, you know, that wants to teach her to dance, ends up with a. Pregnant girlfriend and doing nothing with his life. Um, you know, it's it's one of those moments where you're like, what have we learned? Um, and I think maybe that would have paid off had the sequel ever happened. There was supposed to be a sequel to this where Nomi went to Hollywood, which is why the movie ends with the sign that says Hollywood, you know, 200 miles or something. Yeah. Um, she was gonna go to Hollywood, but obviously this movie failed and that didn't happen, which makes me really sad because I kind of wanted to see that.
0: <laughs> it's. I mean, just to go back slightly, you're obviously saying about the fact that where we have the two different clubs, we've obviously got the cheetah club, and we've got goddess, and we've got the difference between the two is both obviously feature gratuitous nudity. I think the fact that goddess is being passed off as being artistic yes. is the only real difference. Um, but when you basically look at them for what they are, it is be, both are basically excuses to see lots of naked ladies um yeah which, which, you do. which the, the,
1: was the, what this movie was considered i think that actually sums up the reviews it's art, trying to be artistic but it's really just an excuse to watch a lot of naked women
0: yeah i think your review of how you said it it was like it's all about eve a set with strippers is how you sold it to me. So
1: yes, yes. I mean, it's it's kind of been shown as a midnight movie now, um, with you know something like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or Rocky Horror. Yeah. You know, it's it's very much been gotten this cult um, status, and I mean they've tried. They've even shown this on television um, on VH1, which is laughable if you've ever watched it on VH1 because they they digitally insert panties and bras on the actors, <laughs> um, which is ridiculous. But I mean, it it really has kind of gotten this critical reevaluation. I mean, Jim Jarmusch has defended this as a serious satire, and I think that that's what I mean. I don't know if I'd go that far, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of people talk about how you know. I think um, uh, Jacques Revet said it was, um, and I'm quoting from Wiki here. It's about surviving in a world populated by assholes. <laughs> And I really think that that's kind of what happens here. I mean, it's a bunch of unlikable characters. It's very much, again, I'm going to make a wild comparison here. It's very much like something like Wolf of Wall Street, Mm. where you watch Wolf of Wall Street and you're like, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is a horrid person who does drugs, cheats on his wife, and... You know, makes all this money defrauding people, but you still love watching it because of the excess. And watching this character that does not give two shits about what people think of him. And that's kind of what Showgirls did before before Scorsese took it. Um, you know, Nomi does not care what she has to do, even though she does hint at having a moral compass at some points. Um, but it's just this very unrelenting type of movie um and the script i mean if anything you have to love how serious the script takes the material and how some of the actors say those lines so seriously and they're hilarious
0: the the, the cast alone in this film was incredible yes I mean, we've obviously mentioned elizabeth Berk- uh, berkeley who at this point say by the bell had finished so clearly i don't know she had like mortgage payments or the, this a, was her
1: attempt to become a serious
0: actress. Oh, is this, is that what it was? Because
1: yes, <laughs> it's such
0: a leap from the good girl that she was obviously in Saved by the Bell. This would she, be
1: like Selena Gomez trying to, well, I guess Spring Breakers, kind of. That's kind of yes, what
0: she did. I mean, this is really what, this is the 9 to 5 version of Spring Breakers, essentially. Except perhaps not so random, even though this film does have its share of random moments. I mean, the fact is this film goes on for like, over two hours. Yes. Which is excessive to begin with. It really has sort of like... And I think Tarantino highlighted this. This is really just a big budget exploitation movie.
1: It really uh, is, yeah. I would agree.
0: You look at some of the... Again, this would often reflect to the cast. And a lot of these people you would sort of put in that same sort of category of exploitation. I mean, we've obviously got like Carol McLaughlin... Uh, Mc- Mc- I can't get McLaughlin. the words out, sorry. obviously best known as uh, Agent Dell Cooper in Twin Peaks. We've got my favorite actor Robert Davi. Um, i I've actually I was up.
1: I was fortunate to interview Robert Davi a couple years ago and he did bring up that you know this is one of like up there with the Goonies. These are one of the two movies he'll be remembered for.
0: <laughs> really? I would yeah. I mean, He wouldn't well, he's saying he'll be remembered for this above License to Kill. Um well, he, above yeah, Die he's, Hard. Mentioned,
1: he's mentioned before that there's he said it's interesting to meet people who will bring up... You know, you can tell a lot about the people that he meets based on what movie they bring up that they remember him for. And he's like, you know, it's either, you know, Goonies, or it's it's Showgirls, or it's License to Kill. Um, and, you know, he, he definitely has been proud that he's, like, he's made so many movies that have gone on to be best, you know, remembered for something. So, yeah. yeah. And he's hilarious in this movie. Yeah.
0: Again, he's, he's sleazy, but likable. Yes. Um... And it's it's really bizarre, I mean, the fact is he's like, at one point, he's like threatening to throw her out on the street because she refuses to dance. Um, And you can, you still don't feel repulsed, you don't see him as being a bad sort of person, he's just a business No,
1: I I think it's it's telling that he's got the list of rules that, you know, both would imply protection for the girls but is also incredibly scummy, like, you know, he says you know, they can touch, uh, you can touch them but they can't touch you you know, if they give you a big bonus because they whip their dick out, you know, it's okay. Um, so you're like, wait, that kind of seems hypocritical, but I, I okay. Yeah,
0: and I mean, even just like looking at the actresses who were, at one point or another, associated with this. In the role of uh, Nomi, we obviously had the likes of Pamela Ranson Drew Barrymore, Angelina Jolie, Jenny McCarthy, and Denise Richards, as well as current favorite at the moment for feisty ladies charlie ferron but and they also they all turned it down before obviously elizabeth berkeley uh took it on it's so bizarre it's like when you see when you saw kate holmes in the watcher and it's like here we have elizabeth berkeley she's a nice girl and we're gonna see her get naked and that's kind <laughs> of an appeal to this film i mean i'm sure that i have to obviously wonder where, what rabbi D- Davies. davis Thinks that people who say, "Oh, you are in showgirls," and does he think, "Oh, you're a pervert"? I don't no, know. No, I, I think he's
1: definitely—he's definitely one of those that is happy that people remember him for for as many things as they do. And he said he's all—you know—showgirls definitely has its fans, and you know they're a fervent bunch. And you know he—he's definitely proud. I think he's proud of it in some ways, in that it's given him kind of this career mortality or yeah. immortality. Um, but yeah, you have. You have Gina Gershon, who plays probably one of my favorite villain villainesses uh, as Crystal Connors. You also have Glenn Plummer, who plays James, um, the the one of the few people of color in this movie, who had the year before played the sassy black guy in Speed.
0: He had, and he also uh, again he turned up in Speed too, most randomly.
1: Oh, Why I thought like he even needed to come back. I don't that know. Movie, So yeah, I didn't even know. <laughs> uh,
0: I didn't like Glenn. Like, I didn't. I did not care for the uh, character James in this this film at all. Um, he's
1: got some of the funnier lines in terms of how ridiculous they are. I mean, the immortal line that most people from who, who love Showgirls can bring up. Everybody got AIDS and shit. Um, you know, the the concept that he's trying to impart this wisdom on her that sounds horrific, and you think there's gonna be maybe some love a love story between the two of them, but she literally leaves him alone for like a day. And then he finds the other chick that, of course, took to stripping like a duck to water. So, yeah, you're just kind of like, okay, well, that was unimportant. Um, she kicked him in the balls and loved Bloom, but then it died because he screwed another girl. So it, it really goes nowhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, obviously, when we return to his character again, and he's doing his own sort of little stage show, which, again, it just looks like an excuse to grope free women on stage.
1: Yeah, it it's like face. I
0: mean,
1: what's interesting is some of the dance choreography here would be kind of interesting if it wasn't all gyrating. I mean, there's that scene that, again, that's kind of been used to define showgirls, where Elizabeth Berkeley is on her back, thrusting her crotch into the ground, or into the air. Um, you know, a lot of the dancing is, um, to quote a glee term, hierography. Where you're, it's just kind of mostly hands and hair movement, and you're not really doing a whole lot. Mm. Um, so yeah, Showgirls doesn't have. It has some hilarious dance sequences. I mean, I, I tell people I coined. I coined the one dance term, the Nomi Malone, um, where she's doing the dance in the club, where it looks like she's like rubbing her stomach because she's got a tummy ache. Um, and she does a lot of face touching too in this movie. She touches her face a lot. Which, again, if you watch watched this movie and you noticed all the things that Elizabeth Berkeley has touched, I'm surprised she doesn't have a disease by the
0: end of the film. <laughs> I, the dance sequences for myself are one of the few highlights. Um, as random as they are, I love the fact that we have, I can't remember the character's name, but she's the uh, white girl with braided hair, which is never a good look, as it's <laughs> got to get proved here. And she takes out her rival by artistically spraying uh, diamonds or Diamantes, or whatever they're supposed to be on the on the ground. So her rival uh, sort of slips over and breaks her hip or twists her ankle.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting foil that never really again. A lot of threads never really get picked up again, and I love I love their back and forth because there are some scenes between those two characters specifically that are just um. There no, there's their scenes especially are just hilarious. Like you know where they're talking about who screwed who. And the one girl says, you know, you fuck the meter reader. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Or the other girl brings her kids. And she's like horrified that they would dare to curse in front of her children. But there's tits all over this place. (laughs) Um, So, of course, yeah, it culminates with her throwing these diamonds on the stage that nobody else steps on. But the guy holding this one girl. And she lands on her ass, but she hurts her knee. And they just leave her on stage, I guess, until the show concludes.
0: I did want to do that because she's still there. They're doing yeah, attention after the come show's back finished.
1: They they're like, oh my gosh, she's hurt. Well, did you guys end the show early? Or did you guys just dance around her for an hour? <laughs> um, it's things like that where you're just kind of like, did we cut some scenes out at the last second that didn't make it in or, or what? Um, and of course, there's a lot of stripping sequences, too that just kind of seem like an excuse to watch Elizabeth Berkley do that weird gyrating that she does. Yeah, um, She I... gives a lap dance to Kyle McLaughlin that looks both uncomfortable and I would think would break a vertebrae in her back, and then it culminates with, the, again, what, which most people who have seen Showgirls or at least know of it, the pool sex scene, where biologically it should not work because the way bodies are placed... That's not how sex happens. And she starts thrashing around in the water and getting whiplash with her hair. It's literally the funniest thing ever. I'm not doing it justice. If you have not seen Showgirls, um, go just find the, the the pool sex scene and you will you will laugh.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure if this this or the moon landing inspired sex scene in Domino was worse. Wait, what? In, in Domino, we obviously have that weird slow-down, moon-landing-style sex sequence where we see Keira Knightley's boob like suddenly coming off the top frame and like graze against her last mother's back.
1: I I was just watching Domino last week, so I know exactly. That's why I had to ask, wait, what? Because I was like, I just watched that the other day. So, yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that.
0: (laughs) Domino, for myself, is one of the greatest guilty pleasures you can have. Um, it, just... it
1: is. I've, I'm not gonna lie. Well, well, most people know me who will know why I've why I own Domino because I love Edgar Ramirez, um, who plays plays a pretty stereotypical. He's the lone Latin guy, but he's hot. Um, so yeah, I will watch. I'll sit and watch Domino till it's over. But I can't tell you if you can tell me the plot. I will like be so happy because I've watched it eight times. I can't tell you what the plot of the movie is.
0: Okay, do you want to attempt for you know? <laughs> Okay, basically plot of Domino, uh, long and short. Domino is the privileged sport girl who yes. first off starts to become a model but gets bored of that because it's all vacuous, same as the sorority I, I, house. Let's
1: fast forward to the heist part.
0: Okay, we'll fast forward to the heist part. Okay, we'll the heist I... part. So at this point she's become a bounty hunter and she's caught up in heist. But well, basically we've got the heist which is, has been going on but they've switched it They switched it around because of the, uh, the DBLA girl. She switched it around the identity, so the wrong people have been framed. And no wait a minute, my brain's starting to melt trying to figure out this now.
1: <laughs> we can we can recount this later when when we yeah. But I'm like that's the one takeaway I have So I'm like I just shut up and look at the Hawkeye because I'm like the plot yeah. means nothing. Okay. Thanks, I, oh, Scott.
0: <laughs> yeah, if, if you watch the uh, the behind the 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 documentary they put about Domino Harvey and you see his character in real life, he isn't that pretty. <laughs> I mean, they
1: never he, are. They never like are. He's like
0: this bold, bold and sort of black guy who's got about six teeth in his head.
1: Well, keep in mind, she is a le- she was a lesbian in real life, so really there would have been no romance between the two of them to begin well,
0: with. Again, this is the f- thing. In the, in the actual <laughs> documentary, they say they basically they used to send her into bars to lure the guys out, and then they would basically jump them when they came out of the bar. <laughs> there's none of this heist and like shootouts and all this exciting stuff we see in the film. Um, and see, as much another as look... film
1: to discuss. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I'm one of those where, we're I've watched, I've made friends watch it and they're like, why are we watching this? This makes no sense. I'm like, because, hey, when are you ever going to see Kira Knightley try to be a hard ass? It's yeah. never going to happen again. And we got to watch this. <laughs>
0: That's what we do. We'll get a whiteboard and we'll work out the plot and we'll we sit down, we'll do some sort of commentary or something, but We'll get yes. to we'll work out Domino. Okay? Yes. Um obviously back to showgirls. Now we've randomly got off track. I mean both are true set in Vegas, but beside the point. I have to say that the opening eight minutes should we say of this film, do you think that they could have been cut out?
1: I'm trying to think where where are we ending okay. eight, at eight Basically, minutes?
0: Basically the opening is that she sort of hitchhikes into town. She loses all her money, she loses all her possessions. Has a little freak out where she then meets Crystal uh, because you know it's always the best thing when someone's like beating up your car that you invite. Oh, them to Molly! Yeah, with you. Molly,
1: Molly. is the black the black girl who is her friend.
0: Sorry, Molly. Uh, so yeah, okay. Gina R- 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 Ravier, um, and she <laughs> invites her to stay with. It, and then it's like cuts to eight months later, and for myself, that should have been the start of the movie. We. We didn't need that whole bit of how she got to Vegas. We should just yeah, open the, the, the train Yeah, I think
1: really we only have that guy as the bookends, um, and and he does show up in the sequel, which again not that great, but yeah, he takes her suitcase, which I don't understand why he would think there'd be anything of value in it. She goes to the casino in a top that I, get, I think she stole from Chris Hemsworth when he made Black Hacks. It's only got one button. So, like, her boobs are hanging out on the casino floor. She's propositioned in the first two minutes. Um, Yeah, and then she beats up uh, Molly's car. Molly says, hey, you know what? This girl just puked in the street. She's beating up my car. Why not take her out for some food and let her live in my house? See, and that's kind of the thing that makes me laugh and call Nomi the the Scarlett O'Hara of the 90s because nobody should want to help her. But people want to help her. I don't understand it. Um, and poor Molly. I mean, we, we should touch on it at some point. Molly gets pretty much the worst part of the deal yeah. at the end. Um, more than any other character, she is, you know, get, she gets literally the worst, the worst ending. And it's not really explained why. Um, and then Nomi just leaves her at the end, so we never really know what happens to her. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that maybe we could have done started there, but I think it goes – it's necessary if only to emphasize the whole, well, you know, did you win at the end? And she says, you know, yeah, I won. And you're, you're supposed to look at the person sitting next to you and be like, oh, what did she win? She won, you know, her identity and her peace of mind. No, no. I,
0: I, she, didn't, she, she didn't win anyway. I mean, this is – This is the thing which annoys me. I mean, obviously Molly witnesses her push Crystal down the stairs so she can become top girl. And then she still, she like forgives her for this, this bizarre career move to sort of get ahead. Um, She forgives her and then obviously comes to to this point where she's then beaten up and raped by this guy she's been obsessed with in this really random twist. I'm sorry?
1: She well yeah there there's the the climax I think is the most at odds with with because most movies if you've seen any kind of mo- cautionary tales about you know success usually the, the fall happens for our heroine not for friends of the heroine mm. um so yeah she she pushes Crystal down the stairs gets away with it nobody people should have seen it but nobody did um, except Molly. Um, well, no, she, she, I think that's the first time that the, the girl sabotages the other girl. Um, so yeah, she gets away with it, she becomes top dog, gets everything she wants, and that's when you would expect, like, bad things to happen to her, and then she would realize that fame is not everything. Nope, yeah, she finds out that, like, the guy she kinda likes, Kyle McLaughlin's character, is a total douchebag, um, and, you know, her past is found out. And none of that really matters in the grand scheme of things because Molly ends up, yeah, being raped by a man she would have willingly had sex with, who looks like Greg Ollman, which is weird. And and is uh, told by by Kyle McLaughlin's character, Nomi, finds out that the guy's not going to go to jail; they'll just pay Molly to shut up. Which again, not unlike you know Hollywood scandals of today. And Crystal and parts. The, the the reference that I use um, as my, my words of wisdom it's actually the the quote on my Skype right now, there's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs behind you um, and that's kind of the all about Eve kind of connection playing full circle you know there's always going to be somebody who, who wants it more who is going to do whatever they have to um, so again it kind of wants to end on this grand moment of truth but Nomi doesn't really pay. She just kind of gets this wisdom and is like, okay, cool, and goes off. Not before going back and beating the shit out of the guy that raped her friend, um, in some weird skirt with bullseyes on her nipples. Yeah. I'm not that up. <laughs> I,
0: I have to I mean the fact that we have the second half where Molly's obviously raped and uh Nomi goes and gets revenge. It felt like a, a separate movie they'd sort of tacked on the end, so we had some, like, great revenge thriller sort of tacked on the end. And the only reason I can think that they would have done it is so that you no know, we can have this moment of redemption for all the shit she's obviously done to get her way to the top. And, until you obviously mentioned all about Eve, I would very much like of the mindset that this is essentially Scarface, but with, with glitter replacing cocaine. <laughs>
1: see that too well i also think that i think the sad fact is and i i've brought this up when i've talked about other movies about rape something like um kiss the girls with ashley judd and um, morgan freeman where um you have a character that maybe in the source material should have been raped we don't want to rape that person because rape is a sign of weakness um and i think that in the showgirls case unfortunately I think esther haas is a dick and didn't want to have our heroine be raped because it would make her look weak um, or it would make her look damaged, which, again, is totally at odds with the character. I think it might have... I'm not advocating, you know, that, that Nomi Malone have, should have been raped in, in Showgirls, but I think it might have humanized her, and again, given her more of an impetus to be strong as opposed to having an innocent, someone like Molly who did nothing wrong and and suffering, you know, the ultimate price for, for what? So, yeah, I mean, you can you can kind of analyze that scene. That's where the one the one thing where I don't give Esther Haas any credit. I mean, either she's raped because she would dare to have sex with, you know, random sex with a, be a groupie, or we don't, we have her be raped because she's the innocent girl of colour who needs Mm. to be saved by the white girl at the end.
0: I mean, Esther Haas views it as being a morality tale. Yes. I'm not too, too sure. Um, I mean, he obviously wrote, wrote that this, the movie shows that dancers in Vegas are often victimised, humiliated, used verbally and physically raped by the men who are at power at the centres of their world. Yeah, it's... It's an awful, awful film, in my own opinion. I I don't know if it's because I went into it with such high expectations, obviously the fact that it was this cult film, that were bombarded with so much nudity and glorified se- se- sexuality that, that you become numb to it. It's almost as if, like, you start to understand that people work in porn while they're unfazed by uh, nudity and scenes of of sex because we're bombarded with it so much in this film that I think by the halfway point, you're unfazed the fact that we see people wandering around topless nights. And I
1: think the film has done its job. When you get your fill of nudity, especially if you're a guy, not to disparage your your sex, but yeah, if (laughs) if you're getting sick of nudity in a movie, I think the movie's done its job. Um... Yeah, I mean, and, and keep in mind, it's interesting. People have asked me if I've seen the other stripper movie that came out um, after this, which was Striptease with Demi Moore.
0: Yep. Um, and I
1: haven't. I've heard it's awful.
0: It is uh, awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, Striptease obviously earned uh, Demi Moore had now notorious title of Gimme Moore because of uh, I think she demand, demanded about a million dollars to do the nude scenes in that film and obviously when this film came out Showgirls was obviously dubbed as being a flop uh, it's yes. obviously made its money back now and we see it as being this satire which seems to happen a lot with Van uh movies that uh, when we look at uh, Starship Troopers again is now seen as being a satire on
1: I, I will say Verhoeven is one of those where he really likes he likes nudity <clears throat> at least in terms of the films I've seen because um, I'm one of those, I like Hollow Man. Um, yeah. And that movie just loves Kevin Bacon penis, which actually just gets tiring for me to see in movies. But yeah, so I, I think Verhoeven really likes kind of trying to get that shock factor in there. I
0: think it's because he's, oh. he's from Europe, though. Yeah, he, that's and true. When he started off in that's European cinema. I mean, in Europe, they're not as faced, uh by nudity. In, in cinema.
1: And I think that that might be what he's trying to cater to in terms of the overabundance of nudity in this. I mean, if anything, it's always interesting to see just how, I hate to use the term, but it's the only term I can use, in your face, kind of the nudity is in this movie. I mean, it's not just someone standing there, looking demure with, you know, no clothes on. I mean, you have Elizabeth Berkeley like, squatting, gyrating, like, on the ground. Um, you know, it's... It's not seeing you know like a bust of the Venus de Milo here, okay? It's it's you know her like you know, jacking her junk all over the place. <laughs> uh, so I mean it's it's very it's very interesting to see that again. This is a movie I don't think we would ever see remade today, if only because it's one of those movies that if anything, and I think it's why women appreciate it the most. She goes to Hollywood or she goes to Vegas has all this sex, shows her junk to everybody, and comes out of it smelling like a rose, kind of, um, in that it doesn't really affect her life, it doesn't leave her to regret her choices, and she's able to move on to bigger and better opportunities. Um, And in a a film landscape where women who have sex, I mean, if we've watched any 80s slasher movie, a a woman who's going to have sex is doomed for death or sex comes with all of these consequences, I think Showgirls is actually, pro- dare I say, progressive in that regard, in that Nomi doesn't have to regret what she's done, even though other people have been left, a string of destruction, not unlike Godzilla, has been left in her wake, she doesn't have regrets about that, which, again, in most movies, you would have a character who like regrets her choices and be like, what have I done with my life? You don't have that here, which I think is why women embrace it. Mm.
0: It's, it's undeniably got. I think it's undeniably earned its title of being a cult movie. It's also one of the few films to sp- spawn an off-off Broadway parody called Showgirls, uh, explanation mark, the musical, which was uh, managed by Bob and Toby Max Smith of uh, Medium Place Productions. This was back in 2013. I uh, don't know if it's still going, but basically, it's if you wanted to see an off-off uh, Broadway production. And he's got such wonderful uh, songs. I believe there is a soundtrack out there. Uh, just so, going off some of the song titles alone, we've got Fucking Underwater, uh, <laughs> Dancing Ain't <laughs> Fucking Girl, uh, You're a Whore, Darling, and my personal favourite, Don't Lick That Pole, Girl. that
1: That's, you know, words to live, by. Words that's to the most live shocking, by.
0: That's actually the most shocking part of the film, is that when we see it at the cheer Club, um you got Elizabeth Berkeley trying to act sexy which it's very hit miss her attempts at sexiness because there's parts where she seems like going is this sexy is this not and she said uh, licking the poem and I'm thinking <laughs> I yeah
1: I, I'm one of the first people to say when she does that like oh I hope there were wet naps like somebody I've, I've actually listened to um Amy Schumer actually interviewed a, a exotic dancer and she says that, you know, that sometimes girls who are germophobic will go out with wet naps and wipe the poles down. Um, I really hope that something happened similar to that. So that, you know, what have we learned? Everybody got AIDS and shit. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, there is a moment, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley has kind of, I think, um, embraced the cult status of this. After this came out, she tried very hard to dissociate it from it. And I think she's gone towards making, you know, Lifetime movies and religious films um, as they tend to do. Look at Linda Lovelace, but she's talked about, I, you know, the the film since, um, especially when, now that it's 20, 20 years old. Um, they've interviewed her a lot about it, and she's got a revised take on it. Um, she actually posted on Instagram her favorite scene from the movie, and it's the scene where Nomi is watching Crystal perform for the first time, um, and she says that you know it's. Uh, that authentic moment of the, the camera lingering on her face as she watch watches her dream of becoming a performer. So, I I mean, I think that a lot of the actors have kind of embraced that this is the movie they'll be known for.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that and, uh, that and the I'm so excited. Uh,
1: yes! Yes. Which,
0: let's which not forget, in right. the 90s, you couldn't show people under the effects of drugs, so... Her being under the effects of drugs was her to just randomly burst into a sort of frenzied version of I'm so excited. She actually,
1: when she was on, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but when she was on it, everybody kind of was hoping she would emulate Showgirls. Um, and I think they actually <laughs> had her recreate that um, that moment from Saved by the Bell. I know she did it on um, Kimmel or Fallon or one of those shows. So I, obviously I think she's kind of embraced the notoriety um that's come from this film we should touch on the sequel i have watched the sequel you have not
0: no I've, i think the, i don't know if i would ever want to see the sequel after this one but
1: um i watched the sequel uh, the sequel has been in development for a couple of years um it was a sequel in name only none of the original um crew and production company was going to be involved with it rena riffle Uh, who plays Penny who is um, the girl that shows up she's the kind of the uh, ingenue at the cheetah um, that Robert Dobby has to give the rules towards and she says you know is he serious and then 30 seconds later she's like buck naked on the ground you know again takes to stripping like a duck to water Um, but she decided to write and direct a sequel which I don't know how that's legal unless the studio signed off on it I mean, I don't know a whole lot about copyright infringement, but it would seem that she would have had to get some type of approval. Anywho, um, she did a sequel called Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. And it's not P-E-N-N-I-E-S, like, you know, the coins. It's P-E-N-N-Y apostrophe S. So, in this movie, she reprises her role of Penny Slot. I don't think her last name in this movie was Slot, but that's what she's calling herself in this movie. Pun totally intended. This movie wouldn't know a joke if it raped it. I mean, seriously, this movie is horrific. Um, But she decides she wants to become a dancer on a dance television show. She's married to James um, Glenn Plummer, who reprises his role. I feel so bad for him. And so she tries to work her way up to being this uh, kind of dance um, on this dance show. Um, and it's both continuation of Showgirl, so there's references to the first movie, like to the point where she'll actually try to recreate lines and stuff. Um, my dog is barking in the background, so if you hear that, my apologies. Um, but she, it's, it's one of those movies where you watch it and it's obvious that she only had about 20 bucks to make this movie. Yeah. So she's got some, ra- you know, the actors that are populating this, I'm pretty sure they're porn stars. Um, you know, she's got one car and one location. So literally there's a scene of her hitchhiking on the freeway and it's just one spotlight because we can't show you that we're filming this in like a barn. I mean, it's one of those movies where you start to wonder if it's like a student film because it doesn't look like a real movie. I mean, that's the, the, the weirdest thing, is it does not look like a real film. Yeah. Um, and she calls it an unofficial sequel. And it was made on a $30,000 budget, shot in a four-month period. Um, and she was both director, writer, producer, editor, and star. It's you literally kind of the worst ever that's always going
0: to be seen. a scary thing. I mean, unless you're Rodriguez, if you're picking up seven different credits... On your film and not trying to disguise it Then you know there's something
1: I I mean I've seen The Room The Room is a real movie It looks like a real film It's a horrid film But it looks like a movie Showgirls 2 looks like somebody took a camcorder From 1980 And filmed a movie in their backyard. I mean literally there's a scene where they're like In hotels quote unquote And you can see the the pictures of the family From the house they rented Still on the (laughs) mantelpiece I mean it's just it's it's not even a real film. <laughs> I mean it's awful. And it's it's hundred and forty five minutes. It's longer than the first showgirls.
0: Oh god. I mean this film five yeah, and I, like I ran mean, half an hour longer than I was. Yeah, it's to got
1: weird lesbian scenes and I mean if you thought that Showgirls one was over the top with how much sex and nudity, I mean characters just walk in naked and have a conversation for no reason. It's, it's literally the most atrocious thing I've ever seen. It's probably easily the worst film of all time. And I've seen The Room. More than once.
0: I'm not sure I'm in much of a rush to watch it. I wouldn't
1: even put you through that. <laughs> I wouldn't put my worst enemy through that film.
0: Yeah, it's... I, I mean, I can't help but feel that I, this is going to be the sort of film that I'm going to return to it a second, on a second view and knowing what I'm getting into. And that I somehow appreciate it on this higher level. I mean, you only have to look at the letterbox reviews and they range from the, either two star or five star. There's people, there is unquestionably people who adore this movie. Obviously, yourself being one and the critics I've mentioned, obviously, like um, B.J. Clangio and uh, Emily Trevino, have obviously expressed their love for this film as well. So I can understand that it's obviously, it well and truly deserves its place as a cool film. Um, but for myself, it it really didn't do anything. Even though it's got a lot of my favourite actors in it, which just makes it even more painful to say that I couldn't get on board. Um, I did, however, uh, love the uh, character of Mama Bazoom. Um, yeah,
1: she's she pretty much unne- again one of several unnecessary characters that that adds a little colour.
0: Yeah, I mean she's actually in uh, Orange is in the New Black at the moment as uh, Nita Marco.
1: Oh, I didn't know
0: that. Yay! <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, she she has done a huge amount. I mean, she did an episode of Law and Order, and she was also in Brooklyn Rules as well at Aunt Louise. But uh, if you are a fan of Orange is the New Black, then you've probably seen her there. But she uh, turns up as this weird—I don't know if she's supposed to be a drag queen or just a larger lady, but who's there to do sort of stand-up and and sort of offensive songs. But uh, she does have my favourite line of uh, the only way you tell is if I stood over you and pissed on you. When that was true. She's making
1: on. fun of herself. Like, is she supposed to be making fun of the men, kind of like an insult comment, or I making think so. Fun of so. Her-
0: I mean, this is what made me think that she was supposed to be like a drag queen, um, because it's that sort of very sort of drag queen humour where you throw, throwing out barbs at the audience and singing obviously offensive songs and that but she's clearly taking no shit from anyone and her sort of shtick is that her dress falls down that's 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 her whole sort of yes she's got
1: a weird ability to like have her boobs pop out of her dress by waving her arms
0: yeah it's It's very
1: odd (laughs) this is one of the i mean I, i bring up something like the room i mean the room has this kind of cult following and it's a terrible terrible film um, but at the same time, I think it's told in such seriousness that all you can do is take it as a comedy. And I think that that's where where Showgirls kind of wins, is that it really takes what it's saying super seriously and feels like it's telling you something so important. Um, and, and it's something, I mean, to compare, I'm trying to think of a movie that tried, I think this year, tried very hard to kind of tell me a universal truth and just did it poorly, and I can't think of one. Um, I know I'll be able to think of something once we're done recording, but um, I mean, yeah, it really wants to be telling you something about women or sex, but it does it so hilariously. It's like watching—it's like watching Don Weiner try to, you know, get a date with with Steve. It's awkward, and it's trying to be confident, and it's just hilarious at the same time. But you can't help—you can't stop watching it. Yeah, I will keep trying to connect comp- to connect this to Welcome to the Dollhouse. <laughs>
0: I think you just hit on the head there the difference between when you've got films like Showgirls, The Room, Tonight Centre, the likes of Boarding House or Birdemic. Here you have people who are very clearly going out and believing they are doing a good job, that they're making a proper sort of film, and you obviously compare it to like the likes of Asylum, who are very much going out there and making a bad film intentionally. There's there's very noticeable difference between these two sort of t sorts of bad movies and here you can tell they were clearly trying to make a good movie. It's just they've obviously gone away and not made a good movie. And I think that's why it works so well. If they had gone and tried to intentionally make it all oh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, see look what we're doing here, it wouldn't have worked as well as it it, it does for those people who do like this film. Yeah, um, and I
1: mean I keep in mind there is a very fine line, I think, between you know, kind of self-serious that you can enjoy and self-serious that you can't enjoy. And I know we brought up Domino, but I, I was going to think of, I was thinking of something like the Counselor, which is another movie I enjoy and I'm in the minority on that one. Um, I'm well aware of that. But it's so serious that it, and it, but it doesn't have that story to back it up. So whereas something like Showgirls, I mean, it has a trajectory and a narrative that if anything, you kind of... I mean, even on the surface, if you don't like it at the end, you can still say that you... It had a plot. It has a narrative that could can, that can definitely invest other people in it. Um, and they really thought they were doing the good work alongside of it.
0: Final thoughts on uh, this film. I know mean, we've obviously gone some weird tangents with uh, Showgirls. I thought it was going to go one way, and we somehow managed to combine Welcome to the Dollhouse* and Domino and <laughs> of other things here, so... It's been very interesting seeing the way this has uh, gone, definitely from how I expected. It.
1: I'm waiting for Kira Knightley to make Showgirls to Electric Boogaloo. Um, I would support that movie.
0: She's getting there.
1: <laughs> I don't know if she's getting there, but I would watch it. It's going to be, um,
0: it's going to be her and Emma Watson. <laughs> and it's going to be like, it's go, is it, the subtitles are going to be? Yes, we're shit out of money.
1: Yes. It would be very prim and in, in British. I would watch that. Unless uh, we're gonna have them get have American accents.
0: Um, I, I I truly despise both of those actresses. So to see them like hit rock bottom and and be forced <laughs> to stand this movie and maybe just like like up the ante and have Noel Clark into some like really demeaning role where he just has like garbage or something thrown on him for like the whole movie. He's just like <laughs> they're like having to clean like ashtrays while people just throw drinks at them or something like that. I would, that That's the sequel we want to see. Just Hollywood.
1: Like, coming, coming up with ideas, Hollywood. You might want to take us up on this. You um, see,
0: this is the thing. We're, we're, we're writing for them.
1: Well, considering that, you know, anything over 20 years old is rife for the remake or reboot or whatever we're calling it, treatment. I mean, Showgirls, I think, is due for a reboot. So, And if we've learned there's always someone younger and hungrier, we need to get younger actors to, to portray it. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking... We get Keira Knightley, we get Emma Watson, um, we, we gotta find, like, some ski. we get, like, Gary Oldman to play Robert Dobby's character, (laughs) um, (laughs) problem solved, I've, I've given us a, a, a reboot. Anywho, um, yeah, I, I love this movie, um, I own it on Blu-ray, I watch it, um, we usually watch it, um, on New Year's, coincidentally with, not coincidentally, I plan it that way, with Hollow Man, (laughs) so we usually watch those back to back, um. And, and I, I think it's fun. I think it's, I don't know if I would go so far as to say, oh, it's a satire and it totally knows that it's not serious. No, I don't think that at all. Um, but it's, I think, a great sign of 90s excess and what we wanted to do and try in terms of trying to give, you know, women different roles, but it's hilarious. It's got some horrid dialogue that you just laugh at, um, questionable choices in terms of logic and I, I don't know. I have a lot of fun with this. This yeah. is something that I could. I, I'm hoping that, like the Mystery Science Theater, um, three thousand Rift Tracks guys, um, if they have not done a commentary, I want them to do one because I think it would be awesome.
0: Um, just a final sort of question, really, for this one. Do you feel that Essaas is trying with this film to make any form of sort of fem- feminist sort of statement in the way that it, women in this film are shown as being? treated more just as possessions of material objects or do you think it's just basically just an excuse to see lots of uh naked ladies in one movie he
1: he would definitely say that he was trying to make a feminist statement um and and i definitely think that again there are glimpses of it um i'm one of those where you know i hate movies where they say, you know, they bring stuff up that makes you think about feminist statements. Meanwhile, they're they're kind of asserting those old gender tropes. Um, and I think that Showgirls does that in certain regards. Yeah, there's a lot of nudity and um, moments where the camera, I think, lingers on the nudity. But at the same time, our main characters, specifically Nomi and, and Crystal, are aware of what they're doing. They know that their job requires nudity it's really more of the men that try to make it something else. Like James James trying to say, well, you know, you, you give him tits and ass and, and all of that. I mean, you know, he wants to elevate nudity to high art. And the women are saying no, you know, that it's to make money and it's a it's a living and also have fame and recognition. And again, I've, I, I've said it before, you know, the fact that Nomi doesn't really regret her choices at the end. Um, you know, she doesn't leave leave Las Vegas a broken woman who has learned the error of her ways and will go home to, you know, her podunk little town and, you know, settle down with a husband and kids. So I definitely think in that regard, yeah, it is saying something. It's saying it poorly, but I think it's saying something.
0: Um, any other sort of final thoughts on this one before we wrap this one up?
1: I, I love it. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> so two thumbs up from Kristen. Two thumbs were... up,
1: exactly. And yeah, let's okay. let's keep the, let's focus on thumbs because that's something this movie doesn't do enough of. There's not enough thumbs in this movie. Too many boobs, too many hoo-has. Let's focus on thumbs.
0: <laughs> I, I really want to know what your cover note will be for, for the box if if they said and say, Kristen, we need you to do the cover note for for the thirtieth edition or, or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs>
1: um, I would I would have to quote from I mean, honestly the I know they came out with a big box set when I think it was like the 10 or 15 year anniversary that had like a dice game and shot glasses and all of that. And I'm sad I didn't buy it when I had the chance. I kind of want it. Um, But yeah, I mean, seriously, you you don't need more than Nomi Malone licking a pole. And that's not a metaphor. That's literally what happens in the movie um that could be cover right there because we would all know what to expect we'd be like oh this is scummy i gotta see why she's licking that stripper pole
0: <laughs> no my,
1: my, my quote would be i'm a feminist and i don't know whether this is progressive or not i just know i love it
0: <laughs> just like just have like a picture of you in the uh with those like star pictures in the in the uh, bottom right hand corner with just two thumbs up
1: Exactly, exactly. We should remake this with Kira Knightley today.
0: <laughs> yeah, if I was doing a box set, it would just, like, have a bottle of scotch with it with the label just saying, you're gonna need this.
1: <laughs> and it would have a thong or something weird. Like, you gotta have, like, <laughs> actually, yeah, yeah. Be just... like, you're gonna want to wear this and drink this, and you'll be you'll be prepped for a party.
0: Oh, that's that's just some horrible images horrible <laughs> of this. Well, now um further viewing if uh you haven't got your fill on showgirls where do you go next
1: not to the sequel i will say that do not do not go into the sequel you know it's hard for me to think of any other movies that are that over the top i mean if you're a fan of verhoeven's work um or esther haas i mean basic instinct kind of has that same kind of draw um i mean i, I think we we mentioned, um, Strip tease. i've never seen it but it's came out in the wake of this movie and it's about strippers um magic mike watch this actually watch that and then watch this and tell us how we treat sex workers who are men versus sex workers who are women there is a dichotomy and it's very troubling
0: yeah magic mike wasn't the movie we thought it was gonna be for a lot of people
1: no because male strippers are people
0: yeah, I, I I really struggled to find anyone who wanted to go and uh, watch that one. I was, and I was like very excited for that one coming out, um, and no one wanted to go and see it, so I had to wait for the DVD to come out and then realize that it's a very different and less fun movie than we thought it was going to be.
1: And see, I like Showgirls better than I like Magic
0: Mike, so. That's fine. Um, <laughs> fair enough. I mean, the only for myself, I just keep going to like that midnight movie sort of mindset that you kind of want to pair it with like priscilla queen of the desert or i know who killed me
1: oh yes yes nothing says love like a horrid lindsey lohan movie actually there's a lot of bad lindsey lohan movies i would recommend
0: <laughs> i mean this again talk, just uh, obviously on the selling point of weird <laughs> the weird ways movies have been sold um kim newman who's uh, he's the legend uh, if you're into court cinema he's like the man uh, so to speak, one of my mentors really He his selling point for I Know Who Killed Me was that it contains amputee sex in a mainstream movie go that, but yes, both feature sleazy stripping and they're both awesome. Although
1: I will say that Nomi Malone is uh, far better looking without clothes than Lindsay Lohan who pretty much plays the most clothes stripper I've ever seen
0: yeah, I mean the thing is I'm still out I'm still not sure whether she's worse in the Canyons or I know who killed me.
1: <laughs> I actually really like the Canyons. Yeah. I am one of the few people that again, much like Showgirls, The Canyons is gonna become a cult classic one day. Mark my words.
0: The The Canyons is basically best Easton Ellis' ego in cinema form.
1: And I enjoyed every second of it.
0: And it pained me that movie. I'm a huge Brett Easton Ellis fan I mean if I was to name like my writing influence they'd be like Chuck Palahniuk, Bret Easton Ellis, Hunter S. Thompson, Catherine Dunn and the fact that he did uh, The Canyons because he suddenly decided he didn't want to be a writer anymore he wanted to be a screenwriter uh, for whatever reason and now he's off doing his podcast at the moment which really frustratingly he charges you to listen to It's not a free show. It's not like the movie Crypt with like Adam Green and Joe uh, Lynch, you know, two respected filmmakers who give you their podcast for free. He wants you to actually pay for his. But uh, yeah, the the canyons is uh, that's a. I think it's something that we're going to be seeing when we when we finally get onto the second list. The canyons is going to be a film that's going to get brought up at some point.
1: And I will be there when you discuss it (laughs) as its lone defender.
0: That's cool. Um, obviously, uh, that brings us to the end of uh, tonight's show. Obviously, if uh, people want to follow your work or uh, see what you're up to, Kristen, where's the best place to find you?
1: I am either at journeysandclassicfilm.com or com. There's always something on one of those, too.
0: Cool. Um, and obviously on the Walt sent me podcast. Uh, have you got anything exciting coming up over there?
1: Uh, we just recorded an episode on Panther Rocks the Cradle. That should be out in the next couple of weeks. Um, we also are doing uh, Ed Wood hopefully in July um, and we just got our Facebook page up and ready, um, it's facebook.com slash Pod. yep um,
0: so, and the links to all these of course will are at the bottom in the description section, so if you miss any of that you can just click on the links there and uh, check it all out uh, thank you again Kristen for coming on, it's been an absolute pleasure as always
1: always a joy to ramble about Bad movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, hopefully, again, we'll get you back on uh, again for uh, another couple of films on here. So, but uh, certainly, thank you for taking the discussion, should we say, in some interesting directions this evening.
1: Exactly. We got to talk about Welcome to the Dollhouse, Boy Meets World, Domino. I mean, all my favourite topics, really.
0: Until next time, though, this is Edward Jones signing off another edition of the Mad, Bad, and Diamond Strange Showcase. Where i remind you, as always, to keep it strange.